Is Tom Chick. Sorry. What's that, Kelly Wand? I said nobody works nine to five anymore. Song. So did you change the lyrics? Working nine to six, working eight to six. What? What should it be, Kelly Wand? Seven to seven. But that wow rhyme. Seven to eleven. Wait, and then people think it's four hour day. Wait. All right, mate. Say who you are in case this is someone's first exposure. <laughs> well, my name is Tom Chick, and what you're listening to is the quarter to three movie podcast. Uh, and I've been joined by Christian McCracken, I think. Christian McCracken. Yeah, actually, if you just, uh, my name is Atmanand. Wow, humor about about outsourcing to customer support. That's edgy, dingus. That's racist. Uh, and also Kelly Wand, who maybe has a tagline relating to the movie we saw this week, which is... Uh, Horrible bosses. Kelly Wan, do you have a horrible bosses themed tagline for us? Yeah. Um, first off, a special shout out to Tom's girlfriend, Casey Affleck, for ma- beating that bullshit murder rap in Florida this week. Just want to say. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Kelly Wand. Oh. <sighs> Kelly. Murder's not funny. But anyway, um, I just want to say Dingus is obviously the hamster character of the three of us, but I couldn't, I don't know. I think I'm... Hamster? What? What are you talking about, hamster? The horrible boss uh, protagonists. You're the hamster guy. Go ahead, keep breaking it down. Who am I and who are you, Kelly Wong? That's where I got stuck. I I've broken it down. My phrase is just trailing off into silence. So just ellipsis is my catchphrase. Okay, good, good. Dingus, why don't, uh, why don't you tell us some basics? Don't spoil anything, Dingus. But tell us a little, some just some basics about what this movie is that we saw this week. All right, this week we saw Horrible Bosses, a 2011 American black, or maybe grayish comedy movie. Racist. About three friends who think their lives would be better if their bosses were dead. The film was directed by Seth Gordon and written by John Francis Daly, Jonathan M. Goldstein, and Michael Markowitz. It stars Charlie Day, Jason Sudeikis, Colin Farrell, Jennifer Aniston, Jason Bateman, and Kevin Spacey. The film is rated R for Mm. crude and Mm. sexual content. Oh, yeah. Some drug material. Yep. Material. And pervasive language. About 120 fucks. 15 or so. In a sexual context. Whoa. After 70, I'm done. (laughs) All right, good. So uh, if you have not seen Horrible Bosses, I should warn you that Kelly Wand is now about to spoil the F out of it. And the internet in general. (laughs) Kelly Wand, take it away. Give us a, what what do you call this week's uh, entry? Horrible Bosses. Okay, rock and roll. Oh, also, my mom came up with an, a cool acronym. I'm trying to start as trend. It's AWK. It's where you're away with keyboard. All right, here's the horrible bosses. This is. It's like you take it with you. Like I don't even don't expect a response. It's like the less polite AFK. All right. Um. I don't even think that's what she meant by it. But anyway, uh, okay, so this dude, Justine Bateman, works at a corporation 
uh, e-filing TPS reports, and his boss is Kevin Spacey from Swimming with Sharks, and Kevin Spacey's mad at him for always coming in early and working and helping the company, and Justine Bateman loved his dying gam gam, but it didn't stop him from hating his grandpappy slappy for telling him not to take shit from anybody and keep his dignity, even if it means your assets only grow from 20 bucks to 2000 which is like a six zillion percent bump because not taking shit equals poverty, even though the three horrible bosses never take shit and they're all rich. And Bruno Kirby's his friend for some reason, <laughs> and his job's to hand drills to Jennifer Aniston, who finally plays the role she was genetically born to play, <laughs> a dentist who has to do backflips to get laid. It's like pulling teeth getting laid if you're Jennifer Aniston. And he wants to murder Jennifer Aniston because she's hot and always trying to seduce him and get him high. What a nightmare that'd be. It's like he's playing fuck, Mary kill, but wrong. Just like it was played wrongly in RL by Brad Pitt. And Jason Sudeikis. Sudeikis? Moros. I don't even know us. Wait, what? <laughs> Tom, you're an SNL alum. Am I saying that right? Jason? Jason. Jason Sudeikis. <laughs> is a professional nail hammerer and Kiefer Sutherland's boss, whom we know is good because he puts his asshole son in charge, just like George Bush Sr. did, except with us is Jason Sudeikis. But Kiefer Sutherland has a heart attack, which I guess happens after he flies through the windshield of this car that we hear off screen. Or a horn? Or glass. So they all decide to kill their bosses uh, based on a famous Alfred Hitchcock movie called Snakes on a Train. Even though if they do, they won't have jobs anymore. But they want to hire a black guy to do it because that way their involvement can't be traced except for the money and motive and evidence and black guy's testimony. But the black guy's specialty isn't murder, but sneaking electronic equipment under his clothes and secretly recording things, which wouldn't be pertinent to their problem at all or contrived third-act reversals at all. But he tells them to kill each other's bosses, apparently all on the same day, even though none of them will have alibis, and they're being friends, and all having horrible bosses might make the cops suspicious. But whatever, the cops probably have horrible bosses, too. Speaking of which, how did Boss Hogg come to power? Who voted for him? Or was he just a patsy? So the three non-terror... Terrible, three non-horrible employees break into their bosses' houses and steal cocaine and phones and have sex with one of them, then come back to the black guy and go, uh, so we kind of hit a snag, and he goes, oh, so you didn't kill them? And they're all, oh, yeah, so they go back to the bosses' houses, but the bosses kill each other in front of witnesses, um, because CEOs aren't exactly versed in sweeping misdeeds under the rug. Also, were there any black people in Hazard County, or did the General Lee get its power from harvesting their organs as fuel? At least Bandit and Smokey and the Bandit had one black sheriff on his ass. There's a hilarious car chase scene in Smokey and the Bandit 3 that all races can enjoy and laugh with, involving the KKK and a couple black dudes with chickens in their truck. Anyway, in Horrible Bosses, the cops have their DNA because Jason Sudeikis brushed his teeth with Colin Farrell's butt plug. But they're in luck for once because Justine Bateman's car with the Indian accent, Deus Ex Machina's Kevin Spacey's confession like the Knight Rider car did with those illegal car paint counterfeiters in Season 9, Episode 50, 
if the General Lee could have talked, I kind of picture it sounding like John Denver, like not as cocky as you'd expect. So the cops let them go based on 10 seconds of audio recording without authenticating anything. Kind of like how Dodgeball ended, where Vince Vaughn says a bunch of shit about stock options to Ben Stiller right after he gets this head injury. And Ben Stiller just gives up without talking to a lawyer. And Kevin Spacey's all, okay, so you got me on tape through entrapment. What about all the DNA evidence? Aren't these three homicidal dumbasses even on the hook for being accessories? WTF, AWK. And the cops tap their watches and go, uh, end of the movie, hello. And Bruno Kirby tricks Jennifer Aniston by acting suspicious one day and by her not noticing the other whiny beardy dude in the chair. The dingus character. Isn't on the gas that she just finished not administering. And Bruno Kirby goes, okay, buy me a vacation. Ha ha, I win. Now Jennifer Aniston will never have sex with me again. This is the ninth happiest day of my life, right after the day I got a restraining order on Bridget Bardot and told Cindy Crawford to stop treating me like a piece of meat. (laughs) And Aniston's all, wait, you're actually still going to work here even though I can't blackmail you anymore? Won't that be a little uncomfortable for you or your wife? Or are you not telling her about all the murder and blackmail? Plus, what if I kill or re-blackmail you? I'm nuts and a woman. Plus, I'm fucking your friend. How's that shake out? Oh, plus Jason Sudeikis' DNA is also in Kevin Spacey's wife. Won't the cops care about that? People don't just get off the hook for murder, except in Florida. And Bruno Kirby taps his compass and goes, end of the movie. And Jason Sudeikis' new boss is in a wheelchair, so he's automatically good. Because wheelchairs are like halos, but with a chair between two of them. Just like the No Man's Land in the game Halo. And the wheelchair guy is especially qualified for this job, supervising work at construction sites high up on girders and shit. And Justine Bateman's happy because he's still an office drone. Just like Ron Livingstone, I presume, in the Mike Judge movie about office drones. But not the one where Justine Bateman was the drone and Mila Kunis was the Jennifer Aniston, I presume. Then in the credits... There's this twist where we find out the actors in the movie needed to do multiple takes. If they hadn't, we'd have to look at just the fucking boring-ass credits. Names of people who weren't actors. If those people had flubbed their jobs like the actors flubbed their lines, they'd have been fired. Because it's only funny when actors fuck shit up. Just ask Christian Bale. If I fucking wanted to read, I'd have played fucking Talisman. The end. Ah, Kelly Wand, very nice. (laughs) Uh, all right. Wow. Very well done, Kelly Wand. Uh, I almost don't regret having seen this movie now. Hmm. Uh, I regret seeing it. I liked chunks of it. It's funnier than Bad Teacher. Oh no, God! This movie make, made me. I, this movie made me want to watch. Almost made me want to see Bad Teacher again. No. All right. We'll argue about this. Let's see where Dingus yeah. comes in. Where do you think Dingus is going to come in on this? Well, I, I don't know because find... I would have thought you would have liked it more. No, God, it. I thought this was unfunny. I thought it was. I I hated this movie. You didn't like the cat scares? Nope. I don't. I, I can I can tell you maybe two things in this movie I liked. I'll save those. But no, I, I absolutely hated this. So so Kelly Wand, you were kind of okay with it. You thought yeah, there were chunks okay. of it that were good. Where do you think Dingus is going to fall out, Kelly Wand? Uh, I think he'll like it. But if I say that, he won't like it. So he'll change it on me. So now I predict he won't like it. It's like that Princess Bride thing, and I'm the Wallace Shawn, and I'm going to drink his poison. Right. Don't fall for that. Right. Uh, Uh, I'm going to guess Dingus didn't care for it at all. So uh, so we disagree. So one of us is a fool. We'll see who knows Dingus better or who Dingus wants us to think knows him better. Right. Well, well, Kelly Wand, uh, Wendy knows for sure how I feel about it already. 
Mm-hmm. So you can feel confident in saying how you really feel, and that won't sway what I'm going to say. So how oh, do like you Wendy, Wendy, That's right. Wendy has the results in a sealed envelope. Exactly. You cannot exactly. now change. Right. Right. So wow, Dennis, he really I, hated I, it. He yelled at Wendy about it is what he just told <laughs> us, I think. I'm guessing if he did talk to Wendy about it, that just means that he thought it was horrible. And had yeah, to- he wouldn't go with Wendy. Oh, horrible bosses changed my life. I certainly wouldn't go to her and say, yeah, I was okay. I think he had to rant at someone after seeing it, so he cornered his poor wife and made her listen to how much he hated it. Hmm. That's my theory. I guess so. So now we're we're debating what Dingus meant by the Wendy statement. (laughs) We could just fill another hour. Well, Dingus, get in here. Next sentence will mean. So who is most right, Dingus? Uh, I really, really liked it. Yay! You stink, Tom. Wow. All right, I'm gonna Dingus. I'm gonna go play Halo while you guys talk about this. Tom movie. just hates comedy because he hates. Uh, <laughs> wait, who who insisted that we go to see this? Who was Tom. whose idea was this? Oh, that's Tom. right. No, wait. You, how was it my idea? We jointly decide what we're going to see. This is oh, that's, that's true. I wanted to see it, and Dingus, you wanted to see it too, based on the supporting roles. And one of the things right. I was really disappointed at is how little they did with the supporting roles. I agree with that. How, how much time I had to spend watching these three incredibly unfunny people bumble around and ad lib and explain very obvious jokes. Uh, if there had been more Colin Farrell. If there had been more I, – I loved Jennifer Aniston in this, by the way. I thought Kevin Spacey was phoning it in. If there had been more of just Jennifer Aniston, like every time she was on screen, the movie kind of came alive. And not just because she she looks fantastic, but I yes. thought she was really funny. I, I really liked what she was doing with the character. Um, so and She's never see her again. And, and Yeah, so I, there you go. So I, I hated it. Dingus, wow, are, are you griefing us or you really did love this or like it or whatever you said? No, I really liked it a lot. I, I agree with with basically what you just said that I could have used more of those yes. those two things in particular. I really loved Jennifer Aniston, and I thought, uh, and I, and I really loved Colin Farrell too, and I could have used more of that. Um, but whenever I think about the things that I feel like the movie left on the table, I also think about the fact that that I always rail against comedies having too much time in them. And because of the way this comedy is structured and written, uh, it had a lot of people and stars that they had to make time for. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm okay with the way it shook out. I'm sad for the things that got you know left on the table or got short shrift. But uh, but I think overall it shakes out just fine for this this type of comedy. Okay, so granting then that the the horrible bosses were kind of not given enough time to play with, let, let's talk then about the three leads. Uh, we have Jason Sudoku. Sudeikis, Sudeikis. We have Justine Bateman. And we have the unholy love child of Rick Moranis and Bobcat Goldthwaite. <laughs> uh, um, I no. thought, without exception, they were all terrible. I did not feel there was any sense of chemistry between them. I didn't feel like any of them was having fun. I, I absolutely loathe that Charlie Day fellow. I don't know what he's from. I've since found out he's from a TV show. But I could not stand what that guy was doing. At first, I was a little bit okay with it. By the time the movie was over and he has his long rant to Jennifer Aniston, mm. I, I, I honestly wanted someone to punch him. Not in real life, but in the movie, I would have been okay with just someone just randomly punching him. That's what I wanted from this movie, and I did not get it. I could you not did, stand that. That guy was so grating to me. You didn't like his little dance in the car? 
That was cute. No, no. I just found that guy just so incredibly grating. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I, I, I also felt it was very weird. I thought Jason Sudo, Sudoku and uh, Justin Bateman, I love just Jason Bateman, uh, I thought they were the same character. I'm like, you know, when you have three characters like this, you, you want to distinguish them. You want them to be a little different. They were both these kind of blandly good-looking, sort of bland, nice guys. Uh, and, you know, they tried mm-hmm. to make one of them the ladies' man and the other one the hard worker. But their style, their, their style of humor kind of, I just – they were the same guys. Uh, uh, so I, 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 had, I had two of the same guys and one guy who I loathed as of about a third of the way into the movie. So that killed it for me. Um, so Kelly, one, go ahead. You, you did. Well, that's definitely enough to hate a movie on if you're not because the bosses early on. I go, oh, the bosses seem a little caricaturish, and then I go, oh, it's going to be about the heroes and their retardation. Mm-hmm. And um, but then it, it kind of picked up. It, it, they started seeming funnier to me, and I started picking up on like the Jason Bateman guy. He's good at um, he's always trying to buy idiots in movies, and he's mm-hmm. good at playing that kind of exasperated. Really? You just said that? Arrested yeah. Development. The straight man in Arrested Development. He's yeah. fantastic. Is that, that with that shit? That's actually... That. Right. In fact, I would say even that... Um, what's the director's name? The guy is the King of Kongai, right? Yeah, Seth Gordon. Seth Gordon. He... I got this... If anything, he was camouflaging maybe his rookiness by casting everyone as parts that we've seen them in before like kevin spacey's done what he did right. in this movie and swimming with sharks and which is a way better movie and more poignant but um i don't know it made me laugh there was you didn't like the cat scares like the cat uh, we'll get into that in a minute so dingus the the three leads then granted that the bosses were a little bit underused how did you feel about the three leads uh boy i couldn't uh disagree more with you on charlie day Okay. <laughs> um, because I've I, and I've watched uh, a good portion, if not all, of the first season of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And um, tell us, well, what does he do on that? Like, is it the same kind of character? Is he doing a different kind of thing? He plays like like Kelly once said, the the hamster, the hapless idiot. Like he's you know he's the guy in the back seat that gets smacked, and 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 what are we going to do with the dumb guy? You know the he's- the. the, the the character I play on the podcast, he's like, we're going to lock him out of the car and now we're going to talk. I mean, he's, he's like the janitor of this bar that they run. So he's, he's kind of the idiot that they're trying to help along. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's, he's kind of annoying. Uh, but I, you know, in watching this, uh, I, and I, I like what you said, Tom, about uh, the two Jasons basically playing the same part. Uh, although the, the film makes fun of that fact later on, um, I thought Jason Sudeikis and Charlie Day were these fresh voices or these fresh, uh, fresh um, energies in this film. And that, surprisingly enough, Jason Bateman and the whole Jason Bateman, Kevin Spacey storyline was just like, we're just going to import these guys from another film, uh, from two other films they've already done and mash them in. Right. And I didn't really understand that. I mean, for me, the... You know, uh, Charlie Day with with Jennifer Aniston and Jason Sudeikis with Colin Farrell were a great quattro. I don't know. And then the other ones were just like, we're going to try to get some more money for the film or something. And, you know, I can't lay this. uh, Kelly Wan just said Seth Gordon was doing this with his casting. A director of Seth Gordon's level has nothing. He's not going to be able to say anything about the casting. I don't think. Uh, right. at, at least true. he's not going to be able to say, uh, let me get Jason Bateman. And, you know, <laughs> he's going to be saddled with what he's saddled. With. 
So uh, I thought those two guys were were really fresh, interesting energies and made the film really work. And Jason Bateman was fine. He was doing some of the same stuff he does, like you guys just said. I mean, his reaction to, I'm gonna, I'd like to bend her over a barrel and show her the 50 states. Really, that, is that a saying? Um, is the thing he's done before. And Kevin Spacey was doing the thing he's done before. So I don't understand those two. But the other two guys and their bosses really work for me. Okay. Uh, you guys are mischaracterizing Hamster Guy. Here's the thing. I'm going to break this down for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the buffoon is the Jason Sudeikis character. Uh, Charlie Day is the pussy. He is the Ed Helms, if we're going to hang over it. And then you have the uh, the long-suffering straight man. That's Jason Bateman. So he's Bradley Cooper. So it's not that he's... <laughs> I can't. You're trans- saying Charlie Day is the buffoon, but he's the pussy. I didn't like any of these guys enough to transplant them into anything remotely resembling a successful comedy. The most I could do, <laughs> the for me, it's it was Three Stooges, and they're all trying to be Carly. That's all. That's what I'll give you. <laughs> no, they're all trying. Here's, here's the thing: is there's I, a Larry? <laughs> I, I really felt like a lot of the jokes were like on the paper. But there was a lot of filler where they just kind of ad-libbed and stammered and blathered around the basic punchline, uh, specifically when they're supposed to be nervous about Jamie Foxx being a tough black guy or you know, when they get caught uh, at the party, for instance, when they show up at the party, the surprise party. It, there was just a lot of this sort of like, hey, guys, you're all funny, so we'll have a basic joke in the script, but then just stammer some ad-libs. Say funny shit, right. And I didn't. I just found that so grating because their basic connection and who they were to each other and what roles they filled just didn't work for me and just seemed so so murky. But so I, so like 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 Dingus mentioned that I'm going to bend her over a barrel and give her the fifty states. That was one half of something I found funny. And one of the reasons that it didn't end up being a full thing that I sound that I found funny. I didn't like it by the time the movie was over. Is when they did the little. Outtakes where Jason Sudoku, Sudoku, where the the non Bateman Jason winks, basically almost literally winks at the camera about now this is from a movie. I just found those guys so grating by the time it was over that they destroyed any goodwill I had to enjoy that one little moment of Jason Bateman's dry humor. Uh, so I, God, I just hated these guys. Um, eh. But so, was, yeah, they're all three curlies for me. I, I wouldn't even begin to try to plug them into roles for Hangover. Uh, I thought the lack of interest that turned you off made it a little funnier because there's like murders and shit going on. And so they're too dumb to take it seriously, which seemed funny to me. Like well, that the, dynamic works. I you say that, Kelly Wan, but there kind of aren't. Like I, my hope for this was that it would really be – and Dingus, you, you joked about this early, so I want to hear more from you. But I'd hope this was going to actually be a little darker. I and did too, I, and I was disappointed by that. Yeah. yeah. So, so Dingus, you mentioned at first you said black comedy, and then said basically gray. Uh, how did you feel about the darkness level? Was that a problem, or did that work for you? I was hoping it would go darker, yeah. um, especially when we see uh, Colin Farrell get shot in the head, mm-hmm. um, and I and I thought that we that's where the comedy was going to go was going to go into darkness and be a black comedy. Uh, and in fact, uh, some somewhere, right, maybe Wikipedia or something calls it a black comedy. I don't think it is. I don't think it it, it reaches that level. Uh, and, and and it just it lets off the gas. And I think that's sad, but that's not the kind of movie it's going for. It's a, it's it's going for goofiness much more than that. Right. And uh, in that worked for me. You know, it's fine. I mean, I'm a little disappointed that it didn't go black, but it wasn't going for that. 
it was just teasing that. Yeah. That's all we can get now on black comedy wise, unless there's a Cohen brother behind the lens. Well, I would I would say that Bad Teacher was darker than this. Uh, and, no. and th- how? Uh, as far as like trying to make jokes about her being mean to kids, and I mean, Bad Teacher ultimately pulled back from it. But you know, murder. this this is presumably a movie about murders, uh, and we just sort of get teased with it. We're shown one. But the guy who actually does it ends up being the uber villain who gets his right. extreme comeuppance by the time the movie's over. Uh, you know, I think of things like very bad things. Like that's kind of what I thought we might be in for, uh, but we weren't. We're, we're uh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, when you you know, one of the things that that I think that we're seeing increasingly, and and might be just increasingly this year, is something that you guys, and especially you, Tom, brought up when we saw. Um, your Highness, is is that it seems to me that we're going from an understanding of what black comedy is to just uh, vulgarity and not understanding what the difference is between black comedy and just being vulgar. Well, you say that, Dingus, on this scale of movie where you bring in a new director, you impose a cast on him, he gets a script where I, I feel it's more of a product than a, a piece of entertainment almost uh, i agree with you but considering that we saw super last week i kind of disagree with you i mean there are places where these things are happening but i don't think you're going to find that in a movie like this that i feel is more product than entertainment for me personally you know that's a good point and and so given that i have a much more um regular movie viewing schedule than i used to i'm wondering where something like bad santa would exist on that spectrum right because i i'm not I'm not looking at Bad Santa at the time when release schedules were going on at that time. Bad Santa had a dark ending, too, and the studio made him change it to, okay, the kid beats up the bully. <laughs> and he's all, all right, whatever. Hey, you well, I think, I think of Black Santa, uh, Black Santa, Bad Whoa. Santa as, as being a black comedy, which understands how to use vulgarity, whereas as something like Bad Teacher or uh, Your Highness, as you guys said before, just... Pu- just push, just pushes the gas down on vulgarity, just yeah. hoping that we'll laugh at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. I, to me, it's not vulgarity. It's that uh, they say stuff, and then, but they do. People say lines now, but it has nothing to do with their characters. Like it's Jennifer Aniston saying "vagina" or something like that. But you don't believe in any of these things. Like there's no context for it. It's random. I, that's and that's kind of what, how I feel about the the two Jasons being the same character is the, other than the fact that we're going to do the lady killer jokes about one of them, either one of them could have had any of the other guy's lines. Even though I think Jason Bateman really excels at that 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 moment, like where he says, "I don't think that's a saying." You know, I love seeing him do that, but I didn't feel there was material specifically written for him so much as here's some jokes. You know, Jason's, what can you do with them? Go. Uh, let, let me give you guys an example of one, one point where I I thought, you know what? Here's something funny in the movie, and the movie is now going to kill it for me. Uh, I, I loved when Jamie Foxx showed up. Uh, mm-hmm. I liked his character at first. By the time they were done with it, I, I didn't care. I thought, you know what? Jamie Foxx, uh, collect your paycheck. God bless you, but this isn't working for me. And specifically, here's one moment where they kill it. So they show up with $5,000 in a briefcase. And they open the briefcase, and we see the stack of bills inside the big briefcase. That right there would have been a a joke. That's funny. The fact that these guys actually put a rubber band around, what is that, $1,500 bills, 
and stuck it in a briefcase. But then we have a shot of the three of them sitting in the booth explaining the joke. Uh, it's a big briefcase. It's just one thing of bills. We didn't know. Like, like uh, I didn't need that explained. That's a funny bit. The I don't remember them that doing they, that. Yeah, that's they do that with yeah, pretty much yeah. everything. Yeah, uh. Charlie Day, I think, says we could have just given you an envelope. Right, exactly. Uh, and, and well, the, that's the, what the pussy sh- character would say. See, he's but they character. all then they all riff on it with their with sort of random white guy blather. I mean that that they all sort of get in because there was no idea like this is what Charlie Day would say, but they all say something about it and they overlap yeah. dialogue with each other and and it, it's just it's you know Dingus uses the word goofy and sometimes that works for me and I agree that describes what they were going for here. But I didn't need that. You know what? That's a funny thing. The guys put it in the briefcase. Jamie Foxx opens it. There's a stack of bills and a big empty briefcase. Move on to the next joke. You've done your joke. Um, so, so I continually felt there was stuff like that going on, like joking about the guy's name, the the Indian fellow. You know, they they had to do that several times. Yeah, they, yeah, that's true. I also feel, by the way, that's not funny anymore. I mean, if that's what you're wasn't. up with, joking about outsourced customer support, I, I Again. just. I mean, that just felt really like weak to to me. Um, I also, uh, if I can jump on Tom's hate bandwagon just for a minute, the the cocaine when he spills the cocaine. It's oh like, my god! From Annie Hall, I've seen this exactly. before. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, well, I don't want. So okay, enough about me hating it. You guys tell me gags that you specifically <laughs> thought were funny that that worked. The cat scare, the second one was hilarious. Okay, so you, you liked the cat scare gags. Because uh, they're making fun of cat scares. Absolutely, absolutely. And that was a good See look. what they did there? <laughs> I, I loved when the when the Colin Farrell cell phone goes off and that cat's like stretched out reaching under the, the chair. That thing was adorable. I loved that. So. I love that the Jamie Foxx character went to prison for that particular movie, like the Season Hawk. Like, that's the one. Uh, Tom doesn't like it. He's already. I can no, hear no, him. You know, well, no, because on on the page that's great, and especially where when Jason Sudoku says uh, you went to prison for an Ethan Hawke movie, and then Jamie Fox is like, "So you did see it?" That kind of- <laughs> so you do know the movie, right? All right. right. That, that is great. Yeah. That, although the, although the movie starts to sort of sink under the weight of its many movie references. Yeah. Yeah. Like the whole and throw callbacks. Mama, the whole throw mama from a train is a Danny DeVito movie, and Charlie Day is in Danny DeVito's TV show. Like that kind of thing is like uh, I don't know. Uh, I didn't even think of that. Although <laughs> how, although how you can't find an Alfred Hitchcock Danny DeVito movie and then a forehead slap to be funny, I don't know what's wrong with you. I think that's great. Yeah, and I was they were punched him in all those other ways. So Charlie Day got hit a lot. So that should make you happy. <laughs> okay, so here's here's the one part. While we're talking about the parts that we liked that we actually thought were funny, and again, this is mainly just because of uh, Jason Bateman's dry delivery. I enjoyed the line, and this was long after I'd hated this. Decided that I wasn't enjoying this movie. <laughs> I enjoyed the you were drag racing in a Prius. <laughs> the I don't win a lot. I don't want to. I, I was like, if Jason Bateman, after I've long hated this, hated this movie for the 90-minute running time, you know, the fact that I did laugh at that, uh, a tip of the hat to that gag and Jason Bateman's delivery. So, well, I like the the preceding little moment that he has, where the the cop says uh, to him, you know, somebody said that they saw your vehicles fleeing the scene of a crime, and he says, I don't know why it would do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's Fair good enough. that was cute see it's all the pronoun see tom pronoun see there's a, the jokes you're not liking there's a lot of little subtle ones i mean that's uh, all you get the, the the big it's it sucks that the plot's not better 
like you go, oh, it'll be like a, it gets like it should be building up in energy and the, and things should get more and more fucked up and then it just kind of ends abruptly because they take the things. Well, even what was the uh, God, what was the movie with Lucy Punch where she's having dinner? God, well, I can't even think of what movie dinner that. Dinner for was. Schmucks. No, I, whoa, God, are you right? Bad Teacher. No, no it's, it's talking it's dinner about. for schmucks. It's dinner for schmucks. Which but it was uh, a lunch scene you're talking the, about. Where the, 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 the hand job guy was in. Yeah. I'm wet. But wait, the napkin? Yeah, the napkin that said that was from Dinner for Schmucks. Yeah, it was the one funny joke in Dinner for Schmucks. Because I was going to, I was trying to remember. Well, what movie was that in? Because I seem to recall that movie ramping up to more madcap stuff. And structurally speaking, yeah. that's actually kind of true. That the, the formula of Dinner for Schmucks does build up to the eponymous dinner that's supposed to be great. Um, but but you're right. This doesn't have that structure so much. This has no third act. And I was really yeah. surprised when it ended. It was like, wait, that's how they get off. Yeah, yeah. Because the guy, because Gregory, the guy whose name they kept mangling, like that. That's not exact. That's just random shit. Like yeah. I thought their stupidity, because they kept succeeding, sort of. Like they were on top of it, and the more they fucked up, until Jason Sudeikis goes, "Okay, I'll be right in with the tape recorder," and then goes and bangs the wife, which I think was the moment you really hated the movie. Because well, that, like, again, the gags. You know, how many times is is Jason Bateman going to have to make the gag? Can you hold on one moment while I go get my friend? You know, while while Kevin Spacey is declaiming his confession, I just at that. But it point, was funny when they kept saying, "Can you say the name ladder?" When they think he's in the room, like that's to me, you're missing the joke. That's funny that they don't. They think he's still behind them. <laughs> I didn't like that either. Scene. You did. All right, so then here here's not. the one I want you guys to defend. I want you to defend the big Arsh. triumphant moment. How do you how did you like the way that the as a through line. You can't win a marathon without putting some band-aids on your nipples. How they use that, and then it ends with, here's the big punchline of the movie. You ready for this? I'm going to deliver it, because I know you guys must have loved it, because you liked Horrible Bosses. Here's the big punchline. How do you like them nipples? Oh, I didn't even know that was a callback to that line. I want I you to I would have loved right that now. if they hadn't then tried to do a movie reference immediately after it. What was the movie reference? I don't remember. What did they do? They immediately referenced Goodwill Hunting. Oh, because I've never seen Goodwill Hunting. Why were they saying? Because they all said to each How other, "How do you like Goodwill them hunting. apples?" Because yeah. apples are like nipples. Because they're. I went both. to heart. It, it it makes no sense. It's just the screenwriter saying, "Hey, I know a bunch of movies. Let me to throw one in." All right. I know movies everyone's seen. Here's okay, a joke me... about it, and the joke's the title, and that's the punchline. I want Tom, you guys Tom's... to say, "What's funnier? Is it funnier? How, which of these lines is funnier? How do you like them nipples? Or a monkey biting a penis is funny in any language?" Which one is funnier? Dingus? Nipples? Nipples, easily. <laughs> wow. Kelly Wand, which one is funnier? I don't get the monkey joke. You should see this movie Hangover 2. I saw it and I didn't get it, and no one else knew. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Well, there was literally a monkey biting a, biting a penis, you see. I was thinking while he said that line, that line's not funny in English. I wonder <laughs> if other languages would make that line funny. I guess we'll never know unless I move to Spain. Uh, were you guys happy with the uh, Donald Sutherland and Bob Newhart uh, cameos? Did those work for you? Uh, I like Bob Newhart has a, has a chick in his trunk, which is something I always liked to picture Bob Newhart having. <laughs> I thought that was a dude. That was, a that was clearly a dude. I think Leave me even, with my fantasies. It might have been Seth Gordon's voice, actually. I loved uh, Donald Sutherland because I love the way the opening of the film is paced and structured. Um, I love the broken expectation of the way... I just I loved all of that. The different narrators, the way it it mm-hmm. breaks it up and lets us hear them, and then it sh- it throws the words up on the screen. Um, I don't like how that disappears because that's my pet peeve in movies. Uh, but I really like that. I like how we get the the uh, 
the the text thrown up about what an an ass the first boss is and what a bitch the second boss is and how oh he's a super nice guy um i i like that and i like i didn't i wasn't expecting because i don't watch uh trailers i wasn't expecting donald Sutherland to show up and i really liked you know he's like you have another fly in your web i didn't know who was going to be who in this so i thought is he going to be some other evil guy but he's a nice guy and then colin farrell shows up i didn't know who was related to whom and so i really really liked that and i think it was clever um and i i you know even like the uh the weird um high fidelity sabotage i'm imagining throwing my boss out the window moment um <laughs> I liked all of those things because I think it was well paced and it was it was really well set up for the way the movie was going at that time. All right. Uh, ta- Donald Sutherland does the same thing in Beer Fest. He just shows up at the beginning and then dies instantly and he's benign. And then, uh, <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> but everything, I think the things that suck about Horrible Bosses are everything's so generic like that. Like, you know, he's dreaming about putting the guy through the window. Oh, it's he's exactly. building the corner office. Yeah. Oh, and he missed the grandma day because th- it's like everything's so generic. It's like these car- nothing specific to the movie. That's I mean, that that's and that's my complaint about that sabotage moment as I loved the energy of it, but it really didn't belong there. They didn't do it anymore. Like it just was a one off because they thought, hey, this is, this is funny. They saw it in another movie, so they put it there. Yeah. Uh, I just feel like it, it was out of place. And, and you're right. I did agree. I Dingus, I am with you on the energy of that. But I was rolling my eyes as it was happening because it didn't trick me. And I was yeah. disappointed to see that they weren't going to make any use of that gimmick late, later on. You know, High Fidelity does it several times. It's part of that movie's structure. And here, why is it there? I don't understand. Uh, they could have made fun of it the way they made fun of cat scares. You know what? Exactly. Yeah. That's, and that's why I'll give the, the, the cat scares, I would say, which I didn't care for either. I didn't care for them less than I didn't care for the, <laughs> the sabotage, uh, the fantasy moment. Uh, well, that was initially... Uh, something that I had as an objection that I felt like, and this is something that I often object to is that if you're going to establish that this is the type of movie you're doing, then you, you have to do more of this. If it's, I don't know what you call it, magical realism or whatever you want to call it. If you're going to have this type of thing happen, then I think you have to thread that through the movie. And if you're going to have all of us doing voiceovers, then I think you have to play with that. And really we've seen that before. So really twist that. Um, so I was a little bit disappointed that we didn't have more of those sabotage moments and even getting more absurd. But again, when we got to the end, I had to reconcile the fact that I always complain about the fact that comedies are 20 to 30 minutes too long right now. And the things that I wanted to see would have been extra minutes and they didn't put those things in. And I feel like this, this comedy is paced very well. So I, I kind of have to say, well, what do I have to give up? I would I would have happily given up Jamie Foxx because I didn't think he was any good in this. Um, but I I you know the little things that I wish they would have followed up on or that they left on the table. I don't know that I can nitpick on those. Did you find Charlie Day's plight convincing, Dingus? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, and I it bothered me while I was watching it, and then after the movie, I thought, well, they did keep keep telling him it didn't sound that bad, like that. Like the joke of the movie is she's an awesome boss, but he's he's too hamstery to appreciate Jennifer Aniston nude. And I also like like the unconvincingness of it seemed to be the joke more. Okay, like it knew it was inconvincing. 
because they didn't try. They didn't uglify her. They didn't. They didn't dress her down at all. They just made her super fucking hot. So it's like only an idiot would not be right. He's the idiot character. I take it all back. (laughs) Dingus, get on in here. What do you think? I I think that the screenwriters did a clever job of uh, of trying to shore that up as much as they could with the whole ridiculous sex offender thing. You know, the, I did, the, you I, know, this idea that he 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 this is the only job he can find. And, uh, you know, what what I think is just tell your fiance that this is going on. Just tell her right. that this is what's happening to you. Uh, but but when but what what is a wonderful sort of little I don't know, it's not subversive, but is is a wonderful little side thing about this movie is that it's very much of the recession. It's very much of this idea of. These are the only yes. jobs we can get. And if right. we can't mm-hmm. have these jobs, we are not going to be able to get any other jobs, right. period. And so it, it is very much of this period. It, it is a period piece of this period. And so for that and the idea of him being the kind of guy he was and the sex offender thing, I was okay with that. Can I, can I su- suggest uh, a recasting of the Jennifer Aniston part that I thought would have made it work better for me? Because I, I really was this whole time. I, I really wanted her to be on screen more. And, and God, she looked fantastic. And I just mm-hmm. loved the scene of her with the coat open. I mean, that was really weirdly sexy. Not weirdly. I mean, that was just flat out hot. Um, yeah. Mom, she wasn't she naked. It. She wasn't naked, though. <laughs> I know it was all CG, but Dude, I just want Seth Gordon got to look at that all day. I just want to suggest a recasting that would have made it work for me. I want to suggest if they remake this movie that instead of Jennifer Aniston, they cast uh, Jane Lynch in that part. You know, I, and I, I thought, I thought uh, long and hard about different Dingus. people I would cast. Like like the like uh, Melissa McCarthy maybe or you know somebody who would make it more absurd, uh-huh. but I think her being that hot and that crazy is exactly right. Okay, well I just think I'm with it's Kelly like Wan and Charlie Day was an idiot. Yeah, I, know. I think, but they but I he think, was supposed to be. They were like, dude, what's and the, he and Jason Sudeikis bangs her, and then they think, okay, we solved that problem. <laughs> I think the problem is that that um, Dale or Charlie Day isn't. Uh, isn't conveying how tempting it is or how erotic the situation could be. All he's playing is, is the danger or the fear. And he's not really getting, God, she is so hot and, and, right. and that he's hard or he's, he's interested in her. You're not getting that from him. He's just getting the fear and the psychosis. And I think he could have done more of that. Did you just allude to the state of his member, Dingus? What yeah, was that? Yeah, that was weird. That's creepy, <laughs> well, dude. That's like what Charlie. they talk about when they talk about her being a raper. Dingus is a horrible boss podcaster. One, two, three, not Wait. only you and me. One, eight, 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 three, and I'm I see how it is. <laughs> Tom hates the movie. We're done now. <laughs> When the we guy done. hates the movie, he controls the music cues. I mean, is, did we miss anything? <laughs> I want to talk about Jennifer Aniston's nudity for another hour, ounce by inch. Uh, uh, we could have we could have gone on. I didn't know I didn't know if there was more. Get it? Get it? <laughs> this thing. Get it? Uh, I apologize. Did I cut us off too soon? Was there any Was there any major bits that we we should go over? No, I major think we're bits. Get okay. it? Uh, I do want to say, uh, 
before we go on to the three by three, uh, there are a couple of audience things that I wanted to mention. I uh, I got to my theater a little early, and rather than go sit in the stupid um, theater and watch the ads and whatnot, uh, I, I sat out front and was just jotting down some notes for the three by three right near the box office. And I, I I guess I've never heard this at box offices before, but in the space of like five minutes. I had people, it, two separate groups, consulting with the woman selling the tickets about what movie to see. Oh my god! Who does that? That's, I mean, what'd I she say? Transformers. Well, okay. Here's the thing: is I had a, <laughs> one one kid, like a 20 year old kid, with his date. Uh, uh-huh. I think they were like maybe an Armenian couple up from Glendale. Uh, just two, you know, young, good looking kids go up, and the 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 dude says to the woman behind the counter uh, selling the tickets, he says. Bad teacher or horrible bosses? Which one? Is, get me laid. He says, "Which one is more packed?" Oh, <laughs> and she and she says, "Well, there's only four people in bad teacher." So he considers that, and then he says, "Well, which one is better?" Uh, <laughs> and she, and she and she says, "I haven't seen horrible bosses." So he said, "Okay, bad teacher." Wait, <laughs> so that is it. She doesn't even say what she thought of the one she saw. Right. She just says she hasn't seen one of them. And I love that that was his criteria for which one was more packed. But See, then I had, I had another dude, a guy my age with his date or wife or whatever comes up, and he's standing there and he's looking up at the – it's almost like at a fast food restaurant when people are looking at the menu. He's up there just sort of taking his time, looking at the things, even though it's his turn to buy his ticket. And he goes, so what is what is Super 8? Is it, is it horror or what? Uh, <laughs> And the woman's answer was, no, it's like action. And then he says, again, he consults with her. He says, is it better than uh, what's horrible bosses? And she says, I haven't seen that. So he says, "Okay, Super 8. But I was not aware that there were people who still would do that, would go to a theater, you know, 7 o'clock and just buy a ticket for whatever. (laughs) He could have gotten into Super by accident if he'd been playing there. That's right. Exactly. After that conversation. Wait, so when real people say dumb shit and you overhear it, it's hilarious. But if people do it in a movie, you got to hate it. Oh, like if that had been dialogue in, in uh, Horrible Bosses, I wouldn't. Yeah, I said unconvincing. No one's that stupid. <laughs> no one goes to a theater and doesn't know what Super 8 is. <laughs> Fair there's, point. there's film in the theater, so they would know ergo. But well, you did just come up with a new cool job. Is that is the ticket buying consultant? If you could like get a, like a folding chair and sit there and like offer like <laughs> like uh, whoever does with like psychiatric uh, help on the peanuts. It's right. you know I will I will give you uh, a recommendation for a movie that you should see if you give me you know five bucks. Right, hang out a little shingle up there uh, advertising my service. I wish she told him Green Lantern. Because I've never, I, I don't think I've ever gone to a movie and not known what I was going to see. And the only time I would ever be looking like it's a fast food restaurant is if the thing I wanted to see was sold out, and then I have to choose something else. Well, I, I spend I... all week wondering what movie I'm seeing a week from now, and that guy spends all week thinking about what. Well, he's and... just got a date. That's the thing is they were both on dates and I don't like what they don't they have no idea what they're going to drag this poor woman to in both instances. Uh, I was like, wow, that's. I watched moment by moment with the girl a few weeks ago. That'd be my vote for him. The Lily Tomlin John Travolta love story. That's not a real thing. Oh, dude, it's so good. It's on Netflix. You can stream it. You got to see it. <laughs> I'm not watching moment by moment. Nice no. try. <laughs> he plays Strip. He's a drifter. 
And Lily Tomlin is an uptight rich lady. And, and you're watching, you're thinking, which one of these actors is gay? Well, the thing is, we go to movies all the time, and I don't think I've ever, you know, so we're always buying a ticket for something. But I don't think I've ever had the guy, like, in, in the first few guys in front of me consult with the ticket taker like that. And and this past, I guess it was a Saturday or whatever, in the space of five minutes, that happened twice. So You should have asked the same person and seen where they steered you. I'm curious now if I were, when I come up to buy tickets like what uh, yeah Tom remember when the audience booed you for trying to shush a child in a theater <laughs> that was That's in like, Ali that's right that was uh, in, that was a Berkeley screening of Ali yes I remember that I love that story that does sound like a scene from a Woody Allen film where I could just imagine you in, in the in the line and the guy in front of you is like uh, what should I see and you're like oh. <laughs> yeah oh <laughs> Super 8, what's that? More action. Oh, he said more action about Super 8 instead of horror. Oh. I couldn't believe that. Yeah, It's uh, a romance. Well, and part of, part of me thinking, too, is am I going to have to – because at that point I was like, I'm looking forward to seeing Horrible Bosses. I want to see it. Part of me was thinking, am I going to be in the same theater with these guys, like, explaining to their dates stuff? Like, I'm like do, so you're the boss. The them? Which yeah. one? Oh, that one's Colin Farrell, I think. <laughs> when uh, – who – Everyone says it's Charlie Day. Now, I have been at times in like a, a Best Buy or a GameStop or whatever, and I have heard people asking a question about a game, and I will participate in that discussion. But I don't think I've ever been. So you'd rather be seen as a nerd than a film buff like that's less embarrassing to you. Oh, yeah, I played. A, well, no, I, it's just a, it's it's a point of decision. I mean, I've helped people decide what they're going to rent at a Blockbuster back when I went into Blockbusters. But the idea that you step up to buy a ticket and you don't know what you're going to buy for a movie is bizarre. Yeah, I, I have to admit, though, I would feel less comfortable about recommending a movie to a stranger than I would a game. Just because movies, I think, are much more subjective in terms of who's going to like what. And I, I would need to know more about a person's taste. I can make a, gen- a generic game recommendation to, to almost anyone, I think. And I, I just don't feel that way about movies. Uh I had an Inception Blu-ray in my hand, not for me, in line at Best Buy one time, and the little kid in front of me went, oh, Inception, is that good? And I went, are you an idiot? And he goes, <laughs> uh, uh, no. And I go, then you won't like it. <laughs> you sound like that classic guy buying porn. This isn't for me. I'm not buying, this isn't for me. Uh, I have to say, it's the opposite that, of porn. Kelly Wan, if that had been Horrible Bosses, I would have liked the movie better. I'd make a great Horrible Boss. You would. I agree. How about them nipples? All right, let's do a three by three. Ready for this? Yeah. Uh, do you guys hate this three by three? By the way, I no. love it so much. Good. Like- Except that I hate the thing. I hate about it is how hard it was to uh, to winnow it down. Once again, dingus with erection jokes. I don't know what what that. What's up with that? It was just a pause, Tom. Sometimes a pause is just a pause. <laughs> Okay, if you need a refractory period, that's fine. Uh, so this week, three by three is uh, great examples of production design that aren't fantasy or sci-fi. Production design mm-hmm. is a very geeky term. It's basically uh, the guy in charge of things like sets and props and set dressing. Um, the guy who's putting the physical production together. Uh, it's, I think, an often underappreciated part of a movie. Um and uh, I want us to each mention these aren't necessarily the best production designs ever. Uh, I just want great examples of production design from you guys. Uh, ideally, if, if 
maybe you've looked up a name and you've followed, uh, you've gone down a little rabbit hole in terms of who, what production designers have done what movies, because I think there's some interesting links to be made there. If not, that's cool too. We'll just talk about the movie you've mentioned. So, uh, because it's my three by three, I go, I go last. So we start with Kelly Wand, because you're doing next week's three by three. Kelly Wand, what is your third out of three great examples of production design that aren't fantasy or sci-fi? Uh, as for my number three, I chose uh, the motion picture movie. Oh, I'll do a quote. Okay. Uh, I'm Citizen Kane. <laughs> Hello. All right, now it's me again. Oh, I think. Right, right. End quote. Is it uh, is it horrible bosses where they're riffing on different movies? They didn't do that visually because the guy – See, by the way, Steve Wiebe was in that. Did you notice that? The King of Kong protagonist? I've never seen King of Kong. so I What? Didn't... You haven't seen King of Kong? Dude, you go to GameStop and give advice on games? What kind of As I've said before, I don't do documentaries. I only watch movies. You watched American Movie, and it's a documentary, even though it's mm. called a movie. It's a documentary about a movie, so I get it. You can cut me a break on that one. King of Kong's Ooh. about games, so if you watched a game about a movie, you'd play it. Then Jennifer Aniston. Okay, I'll show Who you. was Steve Levy <laughs> in the movie? He was the, the, the writer. The writer is also in the movie. Huh? What? The writer, one of the one of the screenwriters is also in the movie. Who's who? Steve Vibi is the the security guy that greets him when he's coming in at six o two in the morning. Am I right, Kelly Wand? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. Uh, Kelly, uh, Dingus, who was the writer in the movie? Because there were three writers, so one of the three writers had a role in the movie. Uh, yeah. Um, the, he's he's like one of the one of the stooges uh, of uh, Kevin Spacey, the the only one who has lines. It's John Francis Daly, the guy from Freaks and Geeks. I don't remember that, but okay, well, good. I'm he's, glad. He's, to... he's Which kind one of the, was he? Like, he's the he's the kid. He's the kid in the in the office who kind of looks a little hapless in Kevin Spacey's office, and you're like, I've seen that kid before. You know, he's got a little Jesse Eisenberg kind of thing going on. How about uh, these hapless? And <laughs> he he was in Freaks and Geeks, and he he also helped write the screenplay. All right, good. So speaking of Citizen Kane, oh, by the way, another <laughs> reason I picked Citizen Kane. I really, for some reason, it meant a lot to me to have Citizen Kane be third on a list of something. <laughs> Take that, Orson Welles. Now, I haven't seen Citizen Kane probably in. You get 10, a bronze medal for in probably like 10 years or so, Kelly Wand. What is special about the production design in Citizen Kane? Oh, every shot's just. It's, uh. It's necessary. It's a film about movies. At least so you should like it. Because it's like a documentary about movie making. Except he's a newspaper tycoon. Okay. But every shot, like the composition of every shot, it's like uh, those paintings where you have to stare at them until your eyes cross, like Taylor Lautner's, and then you see the picture. Mm-hmm. Like the fireplace, he like walks back, he's going, his back's to the fireplace. Also, uh, when the sled burns, you can see his face in the flames. All right, but uh, the production design you liked for uh, the, because it's all. It's like newspaper offices in his mansion, or isn't that where most of it takes place? Hello? I'm still with you. Did we lose Kelly Wand? Uh, I have a message saying there's a problem with this call. Hold on while we try to get the call back. (laughs) Uh, I got that earlier. Eventually, Skype will reconnect, and and he'll jump back in. All right, so... uh, 
Susan Kane, starring Orson Welles. Kelly Wan's number three. Um, hopefully, we'll get him back for his number two and his number one. He's back. All right. Um, so there's that, Kelly Wand. Well said. That was very well said. I liked what, how you put that. What? <laughs> I mean, uh, we lost you. We had a technical gaffe, but everything's fine. We're fine now. How are you? Uh, boring conversation anyway. <laughs> uh, so do you have more to say about Citizen Kane as your third favorite instance? It, it, did anyone does, – does Orson Welles – like is he a guy you think that did his own production design or did he hire a production designer who went on to do, say, Gone with the Wind? Susan Kane was after Gone with the Wind, but other than that, uh, yeah, Margaret Mitchell okay. was his production designer. Uh, Dingus once tried to have me believe that Gone with the Wind was made – no, wait. Casablanca. During the Civil War. Casablanca. God, yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, enough about Dingus's trolling. Dingus, what is your number three great example of great production design? Um, I'm, Man, uh, I really love this. I I love this category so much, uh, but I'm also really angry at you because it's a little too wide open because I had so many things. Once I really started to look at it and look at people's names, it just started to cascade. Yep. It just like opened windows that you have, and then they just – so many different movies I wanted to talk about. And you were so – I'm so happy – that you decided to do the caveat of no sci-fi or fantasy because that that took the the easy crap right off the table, but it left so much more. I mean, uh, so and it, what I really wanted to do was focus on specific um, specific things in design or specific set pieces almost, which you, which you know what you said before. You know, a production designer is basically responsible for the overall look of the whole movie, mm-hmm. and and then the art direction is below. The production designer. So whoever the production designer is, you know, often like at the Academy Awards, that is 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 seen as one category with with the people from production design and art direction, sort of with each other. But our, our art dire- the art director works with the production designer or almost underneath that person. So um, I, you know, I was I was at a war with myself about the overall look of a film versus specific things that I really like. And, and, and if you look at some production designers, you see this person was responsible for this particular thing. And I'll talk about that if nobody brings it up, a couple of these during, during the runners-up. Um, and I really wanted to go small. I wanted to go with small movies and, and little things that nobody heard of or obscure. And unfortunately, I just picked things that I've picked before that are really beautiful. And I'm really pretty disappointed with myself. And the, the, the third one, I apologize for spouting off because this category really excites me. Um, I really had a hard time between what I was going to go with for my third one. But I went ahead win, and went with uh, this, uh, this movie called Seven from 1995 that was directed by David Fincher. You're not saying the title right. I'm sorry. says... N- Um, the production designer is a guy named arthur max and uh, arthur max has worked on a variety of films one of one of the films you know he did seven or season and and then he did basically everything for ridley scott after gi jane uh most importantly for me is uh black hawk down um but um when you're talking about production design and i have a really hard time 
thinking about the different things between either John Doe's apartment or the police station. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of those things look so specific and great. Um, John Doe's apartment in particular is just so densely packed with stuff. I mean, it reminds me of a Terry Gilliam design. It's just there's so many things going on. You can watch the movie over and over again and just see so many things. And and for me, when when you get to John Doe's sad little library with all of his um, his journals his, and all of his uh, newspaper clippings, um, I just I love the way his depart- his apartment is designed. Aside from the one thing I don't like is that goofy neon cross. I don't understand the neon cross, um, but other than that, I love the way his. I mean, you, we can talk ad nauseum about all the crime scenes and how they're designed. I mean, the movie is a wonder of production design. If you if you look at crime scenes and all of that stuff, but just looking at his apartment alone, and then. Like on the opposite end of the spectrum, looking at the the wooden cubicles and the the glass that has all the stenciling on it at the police station, I, the, the production design of Seven or Sezen is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, I uh, oh, great pick, Dingus, and I, I had a tough time with this too, but I set for myself limits that I want to talk about briefly because it partly has to do with Seven. Uh, I also kind of hated this topic after I started like sitting down to in earnest to think about what I was going to do with it. Because the reason I picked the topic is my number one choice, and we'll get to that. It's where I think the first time where I watched a movie and thought, holy cats, the production design in this. I want to know who did this. Like That's the first time I'd seen a movie and thought, I that's a fantastic piece of craft in this movie. One of the things I wanted to avoid for my own picks – uh, and I, I don't mean this to impugn anyone else's picks. This is just a challenge I set for myself. Is I wanted to sort of steer clear of auteur filmmakers. Uh, Dingus, you mentioned Terry Gilliam. Um, you know, Terry Gilliam movies just have beautiful production design, art direction, however you want to put it. And I wanted to steer clear of that, uh, where I felt like this is something that the director set and a production designer just kind of executes it for him. Uh, because I, I feel, you know, there, you know, Wes Anderson, Terry Gilliam have such a, a strong visual style. But what happens, and I, again, I hope I'm not screwing anybody's lists up. Uh, but but what happens is, if you look at their production designers, you get the sense that the style you're seeing isn't necessarily the production designer so much as the director. Because, for instance, and again, I apologize, if I'm screwing up anybody's picks. But if you look at the production designer of Brazil. You see a guy who went on to do Misery, Lost in Space, and Basic Instinct 2. You know, those are the production designer of Brazil's later credits. So I can't help but think of something like Terry Gilliam as the production design is just one facet of of how he makes a movie as an auteur. You know, he's such a forceful, creative energy that it bleeds into production design, into editing, into cinematography. Uh, So I wanted to avoid that for for my own list. So what I want to ask you, Dingus, is how much of Seven do you feel is is sort of Fincher setting a tone for the way he will do movies from now on? Like, and, And how much do you feel is specific to Seven? Well, the thing is, I mean, one of the things I think you have to realize, and I know you do realize this, is that that film is inherently a collaborative. I mean, we all always hear about how mm-hmm. collaborative film is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the production designer is necessarily uh, working for the director. 
Mm-hmm. So and it the is going to be the director. Yeah, well, yeah, the, and the DP is going to be Three. part of that as well. I mean, the, the director is going to have a vision for the film, and the production designer is going to have some input, but his or her visual idea for for the whole it's 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 that person's uh responsibility to realize the visual look of the film and then the art department has to uh beyond realizing it build it so um i kind of get what you're going for and i like that idea of refusing auteur Mm -hmm. and i sort of when i was looking at my stack of movies that had a lot of the different things that I love about art direction going on or, or uh, production design going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to have somebody with, with that strong a vision to be able to work with somebody with that strong a vision. And when you listen to, and I, and I tried to listen to a lot of the, um, the things that the production designer of these films that I picked actually had to say and looked at their pictures and the things that they drew and what they were going for and trying to convey of their own. Because one of the difficulty, difficult things as an artist, when you're working underneath another artist whose vision you have to be true to is how do you get your vision across as well? And I think Arthur Max does an admirable job. And if you look at, this and then say uh, Black Hawk Down later on, y- you see sort of an aesthetic of of getting a certain texture into a film that, um, and I don't think that he worked with David Fincher on other films. Ah. And so now that you say, I don't know that you know maybe I'm not right about this, but I but I think he has a specific uh, a specific look to this film that doesn't exist necessarily in the same way in other Fincher films. Right. Right. And I, 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 that's part of why I ask is because I do feel like Seven, you, you know, it's very David Fincher, but with the exception of maybe parts of Fight Club. Uh, I, I, and you know what? I, I would be curious to go back to seeing. I haven't seen David Fincher's Aliens movie in forever. Uh, I, I would wonder if you could see some continuity there. But, uh, you, you know, David Fincher's come so far and done so many different kinds of things that, uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I want to give this – What's weird is um, I don't know that because I didn't think about this. I don't know what informs what, you know, because right. this is his first, this is his first big film, and I don't know what if his visual style is informed by the people he worked with, and then he went on to build from that, or if if this I don't know what the chicken and the egg is. Now you did mention so what were the uh, what were the you said all recent Ridley Scott movies or the the guy the with the production designer is seven you said David Mack. Arthur Max. Arthur Max. And, he, and then he started working with Ridley Scott. I think right after that he worked with him on G.I. Jane and um, and Black Hawk Down and then on up through uh, even Robin Hood. So I think that, he just started working with the same guy after that. You know, it's funny too. Like, I, you know, you think of military movies like Black Hawk Down and like G.I. Jane. That has like a completely different kind of demand in a way. Like when you talk about the production design for something about a war or a military body versus production design for what's essentially a horror movie like like Seven. Uh, yeah. Uh, all right. So so Seven is a good one. Uh, fantastic uh, choice. Oh, you I was go just ahead. Just to throw in there just to say one of my prerequisites for the for this uh, topic was mm-hmm. movies that you if you see a scene or even a shot from it you know it it can't be any other movie. It's like if you read a sentence of Dickens or something, you know it's Dickens. It's right. Like with Seven, Seven's a great choice because yep. if you see a little of Seven, you're, yeah, it's, that's, they can't be anything but Seven. And I don't think that applies to Citizen Kane because you can see shots from Citizen Kane and think it's like, you know, Gone with the Wind or Casablanca. No, you're wrong. <laughs> you're an idiot. 
<laughs> or even horrible bosses. <laughs> but some of it looks like Paths of Glory a little bit. <laughs> All right, so here's within what I did. Uh, you guys are going to, again, I tried to steer clear of auteur types, and I also wanted to steer clear of anything that was like a period piece. Uh, uh, I know, I know, you know because that's that's actually a really good idea, and I wish you had laid that down. Mm, early, yeah, I think that that was an, that those are in, that's an important caveat. But you know what? There, I the, all of my runners up. Like when I mentioned runners up, there's so many fantastic period pieces. Like, but I feel like that's almost a cheat because we can't relate to the experience of a period piece. So what I wanted to do with mine were experiences and places that we could relate to. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. So I, I set myself some very weird limits that you guys, you could have done that if you wanted. I'm glad you didn't because I hope we get some seri- some period pieces in here. I Tom, also, all movies are period pieces. Oh, I love how Dingus mentioned uh, that Horrible Bosses was a period piece for this period. I was going to give him grief for that, but he's af- he's absolutely right. Uh, so my number three, and again, you'll note, I was very particular about the phrasing of this. These are great examples of production design not necessarily examples of great production design. So I have cheated for my third one because I just want to talk about this movie whenever I can. This is a great example of horrible production design. I'm only doing this with my number three. I'm not griefing the list. I know, I know. I'm cheating for my number three. My one and my two are completely in earnest, but this is tough for me because of the limits I set myself. I just want to give a shout out because it's terrible production design and I love it so much. Uh, The (laughs) production... The production designer for Chupacabra Terror, which is set on... <laughs> wow. Set, That's not up. a period piece. <laughs> it's not. That's it's, a documentary. It's set oh, it's, on a, And it's not science fiction either. Go ahead, Tom. It, Kelly Wan did last week say, can we do horror? And no, I even no, res- it's not science fiction. Go ahead. And I responded oh, yeah, yeah. to him, we could do horror, but horror normally has bad production design. So that put the little seed in my head where I wanted to mention Chupacabra Terror because it's another point where I noticed production design because they talk about it in the commentary track. Chupacabra Terror is supposed to be set on a ship, but like any low-budget horror movie, it's much easier for them to just shoot in a basement in a boiler room or in a hotel corridor or something. And it's so completely obvious that that's what they're doing with this low-budget movie. You know, if you look at the way that walls and floors and whatnot are built, it looks different in a ship. When you actually shoot in the cramped environment of, of a thing that's made to float out on the ocean, it looks very different than a hotel room. Chupacabra Terror couldn't afford this. So what they did, and they mentioned this in the commentary track, and I loved them to death for it. Uh, they had one life preserver, you know, one of those big orange circles that you throw in the water when somebody's drowning. That, in, And whenever they had a, when this, a space of wall in a shot, they hung that life preserver there to make it look more like a ship. So you've got a hallway. At the end of the hallway, there's the life preserver. Or you've got two characters talking in a two-shot. And in either case, they hang that same life preserver behind whatever character's talking. Uh, So I I just remember when they said that, and in the commentary track, they'll go, oh, yeah, there's the life preserver. They made a point to point it out. So that was their production design. We're on a ship. Let's hang up a life preserver. Uh, So that's a great example of production design, even though it's terrible production design. Now, I'm not doing that with my one and two. From here on out, I get serious. But I did want to give a shout-out to Chupacabra Terror. All right, Kelly Wan. So Chupacabra Terror and Citizen Kane occupy the number three slots on this list. What do you think of that? Yeah, where I guess we're pretty top-heavy with science fiction. (laughs) Now, that's not science fiction because, first of all, Chupacabras are real. (laughs) 
And second mm-hmm. of all, John Rice Davies is in it, and he's no genre actor. So you know. remember when they John Rice Davies was gonna be in Indiana Jones four, and then they went, no, we want to get a younger audience, Mister uh, Star of Lord of the Rings from two years ago. So then they gave us Shia LaBeouf, and now we're stuck with them. Well, there you go. <laughs> well said. Does the Flash? That's, that's true. There just... I went. Ah. <laughs> oh. I had two notes I wrote during Tom's diatribe just now. One is, all black and white movies look the same. And the other one is, Phantom Menace is no longer a period piece, because our technology is almost up to it. Very good. Well put. That's great. (laughs) What's your number? There you go. What's your number? Uh, Great example of production design that isn't fantasy or sci-fi, Kelly Wand. I probably screwed up this category because I'm too stupid to understand any aspect of filmmaking except dialogue. Like I don't notice it, you know. I don't it's believe like how I, when you read comic books. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, but I don't believe you for a second. Why do you think you think I'm lying? I you am. Think I'm smart. I think you're. I don't know about smart, but I'll give you a stupid. <laughs> I also don't well, believe it's possible to screw up this category from here on out. So go, Kelly. That's true. All right, that's a good point. That's what. See, he's digging you there, Tom. <laughs> kind of with Dingus tonight on most things. Uh, the hamster. My number two is. Uh, I'll do a quote from it. All right. Uh, <clears throat> uh, something uh, caveman would say in Quest for Fire. That's the see? quote, or that was a lead into the quote. That was the quote. I don't remember the f- dialogue. I don't notice dialogue in movies. That's the one thing I, I don't notice. <laughs> is it a I Geico just, commercial? It was Aflac, but post Gilbert Godfrey. All right, now I'm going to choose Quest for Fire, the best production design, because, um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, it's hard to make squalid look, uh, what's the word? Poignant. But that movie did. So, therefore, it's got the second best production design of any movie I've seen. Quest for Fire. Uh, uh, isn't that just like caves and forests and whatnot? Are you that guy? You're the guy who doesn't like Quest for Fire? No, I haven't seen it in forever. That's the Daryl Hannah or the Ray Don Chong one? No, it's the one about runners in England. In uh, England. Yeah, I don't believe you for a second. That's Quest. That's Glor- No, what is that called? Oh. Ron Perlman did the production design, the little known fact, and he's in it. But he wasn't. Chariots of Fire. That Kelly wanted to see if you grief me, then everything screeches to a halt while my brain tries to catch up. It's like my head is jackknifed. Huh. How long did that take? <laughs> so Quest for Fire is the caveman one with Ray Don Chong, right? And it's the what's the one? Oh, Clan of the Cave Bear is the Daryl Hannah one. Okay. Now yeah, my brain is caught up. Now I'm trucking down the freeway of movie talk again. So Quest Terrible. for Fire. Go ahead. So what did you like about the production design? What what characterized in that? Because I don't recall it very well. You don't? I don't recall it the movie very well. It. it just looked like primordial forests. Like what James Cameron thinks he's awesome for CGing. Like so it sounds to, me like, sounds to me like that was production design by God. Yeah. So God is my second favorite production designer, but better right. than Orson Welles. Take that, Orson Welles. You lose to God. Now, why do you think you've screwed up the list? Why did I screw up the list? Didn't you say that? Didn't you say, I feel like I've screwed up the list? Oh, 
I just in general. I'll just it's it applies to every list. <laughs> okay. Uh, if I had seen well, also too because it's not. Um, well, you you gave this really. You guys gave this thoughtful definition of what production design is, as opposed to other elements of filmmaking. And then I thought hmm, all mine are just about how the movie looks, but maybe that's not production design. It is director things, photography. Uh, the a lot of it's arbitrary. Like, oh, that place just happened to look like that the one time we shot it. So, in a way, like you said, it's God's doing. Well, you do. So, by the way, again, just to point out that you're wrong when you say when you try to denigrate yourself and say things like I only notice dialogue. You know, you mentioned cinematographer. Uh, I, I think we notice that. Like, we're enough of like movie nerds where that's something that we we pay attention to. Um, yeah, but when I notice the cinematography, I'm just thinking. Uh, this is the perfect way to for those words to be said in front of. Look. <laughs> this is a great backdrop for the dialogue. Yeah, right? yeah. What a okay. lovely flower garden they're in while well, she says that hilarious line I'm hearing and seeing with my eyes. <laughs> uh, Dingus, have you seen Quest for Fire in the last, I don't know, 10 years? I always get confused with that Ringo Starr movie. Caveman's good, too, and it's got good production design. All right. But Quest for Fire is wretched. There's a wretchedness to it. And that's what Dingus was responding to with Seven. It's like it looks wretcheder than Earth. And another good uh, – oh, never mind. It might be on somebody's list. But I was going to say another – remind me to pitch an, an also-ran I just thought of. It's like – All right. Save it, for the, save it for the runners-up. Good. All right, Dingus, what is your second choice for great examples of production design that aren't fantasy or sci-fi? I just want to say that the title – uh, I think that that this would make a great title. My head is jackknifed. <laughs> That's is he what, doing. That will be the name of my autobiography. I don't really know what that means. What's you know what in your head? Is, like jackknifing yeah, huh? is where the cab that's supposed to be pulling the 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 stuff behind the cab uh, hits its brakes, and then the stuff behind the cab swings around in front and gets in front of it. It's that's like fishtailing. I thought. No, no, fishtailing is where the back just sways back and forth. Jack What's hydroplaning? Is where, that's where the wheels can't get any traction because of water. Uh, jackknifing, so when you say this, when you're trying to make a gag about uh, chariots of fire and quest for fire, I take that at face value, but then when I stop and try to think about it, the conversation, which is like the track, the trailer behind a semi, keeps going ahead of me and... And it's just a, uh, it's like a seven-car pileup. You know, it's like the opening scene of Final Destination 2. That's the best analogy I can. Oh, you mean like the that. same one? The same opening for five, <laughs> but with a bridge. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite an update. <laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, Dingus, car- carry on. What is your second choice for great examples of production design? All right, my second choice violates your personal idea of both auteurs and. Um, period pieces. That's right. You know what? Screw my personal ideas, Dingus. I and crappy that. movies as well. It, it, wow. it is none of those things. So, uh, okay. and this is again another. I, I feel kind of bad about this. I I wanted to pick small movies with just normal everyday production design because one of the things I really liked again, and I'm going to repeat myself, is you eliminating sci-fi and fantasy, and I could have picked like, look, here's just somebody's room. But I didn't do that. Uh, so uh, my number two is uh, the production designer is a fellow named Dennis Gassner. 
And uh, he works with, uh, or worked with, uh, on this particular film, with a uh, with a brother pair called Joel and Ethan Cohen. And the film itself is a 1990 film called Miller's Crossing. And the the particular the particular moment of production design that really captures my imagination, and there's a reason for this, is Leo's office in the beginning of the film, which the, the first thing you see is, is, is uh, ice going into a whiskey glass, and then we move back to a picture of a desk, and we finally get back to a, a long shot of the room uh, with, with Gabriel Byrne about to leave, and the the shots of the furniture the leather sofas the beautiful floor and just this the way the the office is appointed and um uh, i just remember the first time i saw this movie one of those rare instances where i watched the movie was back when i was watching things on vhs and i was watching with a friend of mine and we immediately rewound it and watched it again no matter how late it was we we watched it twice in a row and i just remember how rich and beautiful this room looked and all the floors and as as a matter of fact in all three of the movies i choose the floors in particular look freaking great but um but the the floor uh, in this in that long shot is beautiful and the reason i bring all this up is because one of the things i remember is reading roger ebert's review after having seen the film which i don't read reviews before watching and he immediately objected to the way the room looked. It looked totally wrong to him. He didn't imagine that this gangster would have this particular room. And then he went on to say that none of the hats, none of the costumes, none, none, nothing anybody was wearing or anywhere they were living looked right for any of these characters. And I could think of this, what the fuck are you talking about? And I really like the way he writes a lot of the time. But, uh, but. All I could think of is you missed this because this particular room, in addition to the way everything looks in this film, and again, it's a guy named Dennis uh, uh, Gassner, who who also did Oh Brother. Uh, he also did Road to Perdition, which is another great production design. He did a lot of different films. Um, but and it sounds like that's design, his. Like, sounds like that period is his forte too. Then it, it definitely, it definitely, he definitely has a feel for for the way that looks. Yeah. So I cut you off. I'm sorry. Go ahead though. No, no, I was, I was pretty much done. Uh, you know, he, uh, you know, and and it's very much, you know, and I'm glad Kelly brought up cinematographers earlier because uh, uh, Barry Barry Sonnenfeld, who um, the way he shoots the film and the way he lights it, it's very much of a piece for how the production looks. Uh, so the lighting is is vital, and of course the lenses he uses are vital. And when you hear, I I haven't heard Dennis Gassner talk about this, but I've heard Barry Sonnenfeld talk about how. They shot the film and how they chose the forest they were going to use and how it had to be overcast and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But, but just looking at that room and how it's lit um, really gives you a sense for how, uh, how a, whole, a whole production comes together because they want the film to look a certain way and, and it, you know, it, it can be wacky or beautiful and they make this film look beautiful. And, and this is, you know, the production designer gets with Barry Sonnenfeld and the Coens and says, uh, I believe this. And they say, I believe this. And then Barry Sonnenfeld says, I can light it like this and shoot it like this. And, and they, and it all shows up together because that, that room looks so rich and is so beautifully appointed you know, when Gary Reborn sits down on that one leather sofa, uh, you know, it's just the, the production is just I think that room is perfect. Dingus, who would win in a fight between Barry Sonnenfeld and Roger Deakins? <laughs> Deakins. 
<laughs> uh, so you mentioned uh, while we're talking about the Coen Brothers, I just wanted to, one of the things that I was considering, but I ended up not choosing this because it's a period piece. Uh, there's so many parts of the production design I love in in A Serious Man. One of them is Rabbi Marshak's office, uh, which when you mentioned the uh, John Doe's apartment in Seven, I almost thought of because <laughs> Rabbi Marshak just has so many like weird, crazy curios in his office. And in a brief interview on the, the Blu-ray of Serious Man, they talk about how much fun they had populating that office, which is crazy little details and stuff because there's a long shot when uh, I think the boy's name is Danny, when the, the main character's son finally gets in the office and sees Rabbi Marshak, there's a long tracking shot down the office where you can admire just this room crammed with crazy stuff. And it's such a treat after you've heard about this character for the entire movie to slowly walk down the length of that, that office and see the things in it. Um, but the other thing that I love about, and I guess this is a part of the production design, but it's also such a part of It's cheating. It's so post-production, and I think it's so integral to what the Coen brothers want from their movies and how hands-are they are with production design. Uh, Where they shot A Serious Man was just a normal neighborhood in, uh, I want to say, somewhere in in Minnesota. I could be wrong about that, but just somewhere in the Midwest out there. It was a normal neighborhood, and it had all these trees in the background. They were just great big trees, and they shot it, and they wanted to— you know, make sure they could digitize out telephone lines and whatnot. But they found a great old neighborhood where they could sort of put period cars in there and not have to cheat too much. But one of the things they did, and I think the Coen brothers talk about this as well in the interview, is they digitally removed all the big trees, these old growth trees that were in the background. Uh, they took them out. And I remember them mentioning that and thinking, wow, that's kind of odd. Why, why would you go to the bother? But then you see the movie, and it gives this this neighborhood, the sense of being flat with a huge open sky over it. Mm. And the importance of that is what's going to come out of this sky, which I don't want to spoil anything about a serious man, but the entire movie is about how God or heaven or sky looms over everything. I mean, that's such a thematic point that they, with the production design, they wanted to visually mirror it. So they find this great neighborhood and they say, you know what, we got to lose these trees and they take it out in, in post. And I, I don't know if that's technically art direction, production, I don't know what you would call that. But I just love how that decision is so important to what they're trying to do in the movie. Uh, well, I think that's it. There's so many things that you just said that made my brain go blue. Uh, did your head just jackknife dingus? A little bit. Because, because now I'm starting to think is with the number of things that people that they can do in in post uh how do we define who's the production designer and all of those right. types of things yeah because yeah. when you talk about the neighborhood immediately i think about the lack of sidewalks and and was that they found a neighborhood without sidewalks or did they do that and whose choice is that and and if and if you have a production where we create a room and then we just decide to remove things and shove things in in post who's <laughs> Who gets credit for that? I know. So uh, one of the okay, I, I actually when I got went to see uh, Horrible Bosses, I did get in early enough to catch one of those stupid little commercials they show. Uh, there's a series running on ABC this fall, I think, called Pan Am, which is about stewardesses. They're obviously going for a madman type of angle. It's a, a period piece about stewardesses back in the day with Christina Ricci in one of those adorable old timey stewardess outfits. But they showed a bit of them shooting in an airport. 
and the airport looks fantastic with all of these period cars and the planes out on the tarmac, and it's all green screen. They show a bit of them shooting it, and it's like a sound stage of Christina Ricci walking around with a green paper hung from the walls. Uh, so yeah, not just in movies, Dingus, but TV. I mean, yeah, it's such a weird thing now. Uh, so what, CG, what? You mean? Well, what does that do to production design? You know, this great period movie about stewardesses in what are the '60s or whatever. It's it's all it's it's as animated as Phantom Menace, you know. Well, uh, it's just like uh, you know, with with Twenty Eight Days Later. I mean, you can make whatever film you're going to make, and right. then we'll just put the background in as you know, you actors go do whatever the hell you're going to do, and we're going to put in whatever backgrounds, and if if and we'll make your reactions work. Right. And well, this, so who gets the who gets the production credit on something? Like that? Well, that's why. So here's for my number one and two. I can guarantee you there was no cheating. And part of what I loved about my my two choices for number for my uh, examples of great production design, they aren't cheated at all. It's all old-fashioned practical stuff. And one of the reasons is because both of these movies are shot with handheld cameras. Where uh, and you could do a, a CG that way. Uh, but in these cases, I, I get the sense that the directors just said, you know what, let's make a great set. Let's have the actors do cool stuff on it. And, you know, we're just going to have cameras lurking around filming it. And and so these sets are actually almost like real places. And it's what I what I love about my, my two choices. They're both modern day. But I love how the different locations uh, are, are stocked with with props and personality. So my number two that I'm, I'm going to bring up here, uh, the, the production designer's name is Christina Casali, and she mainly does television, it seems, British television. Uh, the one notable thing beyond what the movie I'm about to tell you about that she did is the first installment of these crime, uh, a crime series on BBC called Red, Ri- Red Riding Hood? Riding Hood? Red Riding just Red Riding. Red Riding, yes. So she did the first installment, the one with Andrew Garfield, which is a 70s period piece. She did a great that's – that's just a – all three of those movies are great period pieces. But she also did a movie, a British movie called In the Loop. She's a production designer for this uh, – I've compared it to Dr. Strangelove before, and I, I really do think – I watched it again. I've, I could watch this movie over and over again. Uh, I really do think it's a Dr. Strangelove for our generation. Uh, it's about the invasion of Iraq, and it's a movie where they never once use the word Iraq. I love that about it. But it takes place starting off in London. It then visits Washington, D.C., and in the end, it takes place in the U.N. building. And all of these locations, because the movie isn't about policymakers making decisions. The movie is about the bureaucracy being buffeted by these decisions and dragged along behind this ideological choice to go to war. And and in the loop is an observation of how this affects the mid-level bureaucracy of government. Uh, So it takes place entirely in offices, basically. And there's a great contrast between the offices of uh, one character who plays the prime minister's communications director on 10 Downing Street with these beautiful, like, uh, I guess it's mahogany, I don't know, like wood paneling walls. Um, And then there's the mid-level, like there's a a ministry uh, uh, building where there's a a mid-level guy's office, and it's got like binders all over the wall. They've got glass, uh, they've got offices partitioned by glass and, and Venetian blinds, uh, and they even make jokes about them. At one point, this one hapless prime minister is inside of his office 
complaining that he can't control the blinds, that the people outside control the <laughs> blinds. Uh, he's like, why can't I have control of my own blinds? Uh, and then the, late, the movie later goes to Washington, D.C., to the State Department, where the offices are just bare glass. And there's this sense that these mid-level managers, there's a, there's a, there's sort of a hawk and a dove character at the State Department, and they're both at the opposite end of a length of desks with, with their interns and whatnot between them behind glass offices where they can see each other down the hall. And, and one of them, there's a character, uh, the hawk character at one point makes the observation that glass offices are for perverts. Uh, and there's there seems where he's got to hold his hand in front of his mouth because he doesn't want anyone to see what he's saying. Uh, uh, and then later the movie goes to the UN, which has all this like weird geometry and art on it. And there's a UN meditation room that's oddly lit and has this freaky like artwork against the backdrop that's supposed to obviously be culture neutral because it's the UN. Uh, so, so I love how the movie progresses through these different locations and how each location feels like a real office, like a place stuffed with things that should be there. Um, so that, that's my choice for number two. And it's a, it's, a, it's a handheld camera. The movie's shot very documentary style. You know, it's one of these movies that's it's from a TV show, and it's very much the fallout of the style that the original office was shot with. Like there's a fly-on-the-wall camera just spying on conversations. And Christina Casali's production design for these various offices and buildings uh i love it and i love how much it's a part of the characters for instance actually the hawk at the state department a character named linton warwick who's just insane this guy's crazy uh it's full of little statues of eagles and cannons you know every every shelf in this movie is full of like binders or statues or something and it, his little office has got eagles and cannons around it and and watching it this time specifically for the production designer i noticed that james gandolfini even comments on how it's only guys who've never been to war that have cannons in their office mm-hmm. uh so i just love the production design in the movie and i love how it's a part of the characters and i love how it's a part of the story arc so there you go there's my number two it's period piece I guess that's true. We invaded Iraq in 2003. So, yeah, it's a March 2003 uh, period piece. Good point. Also, cannons are Victorian era, so it's period piece. <laughs> well, in Does Eagles anybody are... have an office full of dolphins? That would be so funny. That would be so funny if they did. They should put that in a movie. I love the picture in my head of those glassed offices, though, and and the different way the offices are used in that film. Uh, that's a, I, I really like when a production designer can understand how to take existing spaces and uh, just dress them enough so that it works for this particular film. Because yeah. your your uh, delineation between the offices that they start out with and when they get to America is really great. And I actually got to shoot some at the location. They actually shot some of it at 10 Downing Street. Now, I don't, I don't think this is a functional office. I imagine they still had to dress the set. Um but I know, uh, you know, some of these are rare locations. It's actually, even in the there's a there's a place that stands in for the White House at one point. Um, right so. when he has to just wait for somebody. Uh, he's actually uh, greeted by a guy who uh, claims to be 22. Like it's where Malcolm <laughs> goes to meet with a. He's going to the War Committee at the White House, and it's some kid who who insists that he's 22, but he looks 12. Uh, yeah, he has an actual meeting at the White House. Uh, <laughs> And when that's right, and when a, and when a, a black servant comes in with his coffee, 
Malcolm says something like, oh, I'm glad the vice president could show up. Or, and I'm not sure I get that joke, but just him and that Scottish brogue saying something irreverent, it just works. I don't care what he says. That guy's great. Uh, Wait, I don't get that joke either. I don't either. I mean, it's, a black guy walks in and he says, oh, the vice president has joined us. I don't get that. That was Cheney. It. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's just him being a jerk. Uh, or is he saying America's like the rich white Joffrey Baratheon? Sometimes uh, Scottish insults are just Scottish insults, Kelly Wand. Don't try to parse them. They'll just drive you crazy. Uh, there's also, well, never mind. Yeah, I could talk about it in the loop. Oh, no, go. Well, there, there's a point, too, where they leave where, where Simon Foster, the, the hapless minister who gets caught up in the war debate, uh, has to talk to his constituents. So there's a point where he goes to the constituency office, which is just some building out in, I, I think they say it's Northampton, which doesn't mean anything to me, but it's just a rundown office where he has to, <laughs> he's like basically almost literally in a broom closet stuffed with stuff, and he's got to reach under a desk to plug in his computer to get it to work, and he can't get it to work, and whenever he's jiggling around underneath the desk, there's a visual gag where a neon Merry Christmas sign hanging on the wall in the background lights up. Like he's plugging he's plugging that in instead of his computer, uh, which is another <laughs> another bit of production design that I only noticed this last time I watched it. Keep an eye out for it. Uh, Are you suggesting In the Loop has better production design than Horrible Bosses? I would say it's got better production design than Quest for Fire. Really? Because <laughs> trees don't count. <laughs> I see how it is. Well, I, I want to talk uh, for a second since you since you both brought up Horrible Bosses and Tom brought up uh, Marshak's office. Um, is yes, Marshak's yes. office appreciably better than Colin Farrell's house? <laughs> mm. Colin kind of Farrell's- an asshole. Yeah, yeah, Colin Farrell's house. You know what? And that's that's an, again, horrible bosses has to explain the joke. Like the audience doesn't get it. Uh, but uh, I liked Colin Farrell's house. That that was enjoyable. Uh, that was a good bit of production design. In those credits, the there's a scene with Colin Farrell at Home Depot or something, wasn't it? In the yeah, movie? we didn't get that scene. We so got screwed out of a Colin Farrell scene. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right, nice. Kelly, what do you got that tops in the loop? What's your number one choice for a great example of production design? See, so you agree with me, the quest for fire. people where he's asking for the list. Something? What's he doing? I forget his line. Clearly in a pharmacist. Oh. <laughs> an apartment? He's clearly in a pharmacist. He's not oh, a pharmacist. Depot. They have pharmacies in Home Depot, don't Yeah, Dingus, oh. you don't, you don't know. Dingus what? is laughing awfully hard for that level of stupidness. On Dingus, my... you do not know where Kelly Wan gets his prescriptions filled. That's all yeah, I'm saying. Quite... <laughs> Deep, the, just, just remember what the last three letters of Home Depot are. <laughs> Booyah. Right. Very good, Kelly Wan. All right, what's your number one choice? See, if Dingus had giggled like a girl, we'd have, we wouldn't have gotten that joke. Dingus, Dingus. Dingus jackknifed the podcast. <laughs> you're not going to champion AWK, but you're going to champion Jackknife. All right, never mind. I'll do the same. You're right. Okay. Uh, my number one, and I'm really hurt that you made fun of my Quest for Fire thing, because there's a lot of mud. That really impresses me. I'm telling Stage. you, production design by God. So unless it's Pete, but you're the religious dude. <laughs> I am. So should, uh, pr- but because it's about evolution, you don't like Quest for Fire. I don't think God is a member of the Production Designers Union. 
Dude, wait. So when uh, Ansel Adams takes an awesome picture of a lightning bolt, mm-hmm. you're saying, um, I don't know what you're saying. I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> Something about the bear eating that woman. Except it was a dude. Home Depot. All right. My number one. I had a lot of. I have a lot of good runners up. So if this is boring, wait. I mean, when this is boring. I tried to think of a movie where the star of the movie was the production design. Mm. And it has almost nothing in it that's awesome except the production design. Mm. Let me guess. All right. What would you say? Uh, Russian Ark. That's a movie? (laughs) Isn't that a movie where it's like a three-hour documentary that consists entirely of the camera going through the, the hermitage, that big museum? Am I wrong about that? Well, first off, a documentary and a movie are two totally separate genres. Tom. Ah, well played, Kelly Wand. I've just been hoist on my own petard. That's like calling a comic book a book because it has pages, even though it's comical. Because Fair superheroes point. look goofy. Green so, so what did you come up with then that uh, that meets your criteria? I don't know if you've seen this movie, and I I don't really like the movie, but it's something that kind of got to me when I saw it, and then it's only the first half that's good. So you know, it's not Jaws, huh? Um, <clears throat> I'll do a line from it. Uh, I'm Julianne Moore's character. I'm in this movie. Uh, I'm allergic to everything. Safe is a good movie. Safe is a who directed it's, that? Todd. It's not uh, Todd Solon's. Uh, it's a oh rats. Help me out here, Kelly Wand. You're being racist. That's your hint. <laughs> Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes. Right, 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 right. Remember, and there, I remember he said that um. There's a sound effect on the soundtrack. I sound like a chimp. Uh, <laughs> there's like this ambient sound, like this buzz, this annoying buzz. It's like it's exactly you can barely hear it, and it's almost like a dog whistle of irritation, like designed to make you feel annoyed and like mm. creeped out. Mm. You know, like how they messed with the tile, bathroom tiles, and Final Destination, your favorite horror franchise. <laughs> That's not sci-fi. Uh, now, did Todd Haynes do that that glam rock movie with uh, Ewan McGregor running around naked? What what was that movie? Oh, uh, Rockstar with Aniston, Mark Wahlberg. No, no. Do you not know what I'm talking about? Dottie really? gets spanked. Far I from Heaven, Velvet Goldmine. Well, I know he did Far from Velvet Goldmine's the one I'm thinking of. It is he. I know he did Far from Heaven because I wanted to bring that up. Uh, as a, I mean, that is just production design and cinematography, but it's a period piece. I, I'm convinced that Far From Heaven is one of the most gorgeous movies you will ever see of any genre, period. Like, like Far From Heaven is is just gorgeous. Um, but he also did Velvet Goldmine. Am I right about that? Yeah. Okay, right. That was his follow-up to Safe. So, in a way, that's my choice. Do you know offhand, Kelly Wand, I think I know the answer to this, but do you know offhand if he always uses the same production designer? Does he work with different people? I don't know anything. <laughs> okay. I didn't really research the topic at all, except, oh, production design. Oh, I guess that means color scheme or something. Whatever. <laughs> Fucking Tom. I hate that guy. Fucking Battlestar Galactica board game, whatever. <laughs> so your number one choice is Safe. I like Safe a lot. I don't remember a lot about the production design. I remember the freaky... Remember there's a... She- retires to eventually like she gets the the hypoallergenic safe house or whatever like i remember that being weird but um that part's boring but remember the part where she gets the couch that's the wrong color and she freaks out because it's yep. the wrong color yep and she's at the bur- it's like i like that movie because it's all about how everything's supposed to look fun and pleasant but nothing does um like she gets sick at that party 
I no, I, I, I as a sort of like the rapture as a movie about little literally hysteria. Uh, I really like Safe a lot. Um, Do you think uh, Safe is like the rapture in that nothing is real after a certain point? Like she's gone too insane to know reality. I don't remember that being a facet of Safe, but I haven't seen it in a while. Because I didn't mind the, the James Legro parts. Like she goes to the rehab place and meets James Legro, right? Isn't that how that plays out? Yeah, but that's not as creepy to me as like, oh, she's in a parking structure, panning for breath. We've been all on, we've all been on that date <laughs> after visiting Home Depot to pick up your prescription. Well, yeah, I have glaucoma and I need it to get really baked. <laughs> Dingus, have you seen yeah. Safe? Of course. Have you Have you seen Far from Heaven? Yep. All right. Are you with me on Far from Heaven? Uh, yeah, I can go with you that. I can't go with either of you on Safe. Really. Why? Why not? Because what do you hate about the guy can't shoot a scene except if he's across the street and that drives me up the wall. <laughs> it's I supposed to shoot. it's supposed to make you feel removed from the action dingus. Yeah. Oh I do. It's like I was watching my neighbor watching the movie. It's, <laughs> it's like how horrible bosses makes going to the dentist sound not exciting. Like, oh Jennifer Aniston's naked whatever I'm on. All right, safe. Dingus, what is your number one choice for great production design that isn't sci-fi or fantasy? Remember, don't be bringing up Empire Strikes Back. That's a science fantasy, so it's a legal move because it's blends. And it's also a period piece because it was far away and long ago. La 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 la. But that was also an auteur movie because Irvin Kirshner and George Lucas can't hear the music anymore <laughs> let's move on so dingus what is your number one if it's not empire strikes back because i <laughs> that was a minor star wars reference <laughs> all right my number one it was uh, it, you know in the first ones i tried to uh focus on specific moments or specific scenes or specific pieces that w- could give you guys an example of the production design and focus on that uh, this one uh, ruins that because overall the production design of this movie is there. There was never any doubt that, it, and I watched it again this week. It's just uh, it's, it's an incredible production design, and the the production designer is a person named Dante Ferretti. Ah. Who has done yeah, so I was about sorry. to say what Tom said. <laughs> Wait, I was I just know thinking that, what Tom said. No, I actually know that name. I mean, partly because Dante is so memorable. But go ahead, Dingus. I'm sorry. I had an involuntary reaction as my mouth uh, jackknifed. Yeah, you said the word Dante and jackknifed. <laughs> <laughs> and he's he's known for working with uh, with one specific auteur. This is a different movie. This is a movie called Titus. And um, the movie Titus is from uh, 1999. It's directed by Julie Taymor. And again, Dante Ferretti did the production design for it. And the production design for uh, Titus, if you haven't seen it, it's just freaking phenomenal from the moment the film starts in this crowded, ridiculous little kitchen. And then it, and then it moves on to this this Roman square and uh, just goes on from there. And I, and I watched the film. I tried to nail down uh, the specific. The moment where the director, where Julie Taymor really says, this is what nails down the production design for us, is is a, a moment in front of what I think is supposed to be basically the Senate. Um, but it's it's the Square Coliseum in Italy. 
Um, and, and if you know what I'm talking about, you'll have a picture of it in your head. It's when those banners come down in front of this stark white building with arches. And it's a tall white building. It's called the Square Coliseum. And it's, it's from, it's something Mussolini built. And, and, and the production design has this very weird, um, conflicting design ideas to it, where you might have some fascism, you might have some American cars from the 50s, you might have some motorcycles, uh, you might have hairdos from the 20s, but it's very much a film about straddling those and, and uncomfortably straddling old with modern ideals. And um, so the director's idea of where the production design takes off is that that square coliseum, that huge big building that they meet in front of for their political speeches. Uh, but, but for me, almost there's this moment where Lavinia, where they where they find where Calm Fury find her uncle finds Lavinia, and she's standing on this stump, and it's this this swamp of stumps and branches, and she's standing on one of those stumps, and that's beautiful design as well. But everything in this movie, from where from the 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 windows where the pies are are uh, cooling and the curtains are fluttering the, those windows the way those windows look to the tables uh to the the mausoleum where where the sons are interred it's just a phenomenal production design soup to nuts and again this is this is uh this is dante freddy and and julie tamar working together i kind of feel like that's cheating because it's like shakespeare it is like shakespeare it is like period <laughs> it's yeah, shakespeare it is also science fiction it's fan it is fantasy I'm going there. There, no, but that's that is a great example, Dingus. But it's like so that that's where production design jackknifes. Wow. <laughs> but when yeah. you see that the, the, those early moments where the soldiers are coming home and they're doing that stylized marching and they're caked and and Kelly Wan said the perfect thing about mud earlier. Uh, <laughs> they're caked oh, yeah. in blue mud and they're working in this stylized way. And there's these different vehicles, and you don't know what time we're in yet. And then all of a sudden, motorcycles come in, and there's a car pulling. I mean, the production design for this and the the design elements, along with that kid from the kitchen in the very beginning of the movie, you watch the movie two or three times, and you're just you're still like, what does this mean? And I love the way Julie Taymor, who I think probably got her start as a, as a production or art director, all uh, right, you no, know, a costume designer, I should say, um, really understands how do I make all of these elements which may seem disparate to somebody who doesn't know this play feel like a united whole that will, will bring production design together and and for her to get dante ferretti who would go on to work with martin scorsese and do you know things like shutter island later on and, and all of i think all of scorsese's films after uh not after um that departed movie i can't remember but he started working with scorsese after after Goodfellas, he didn't do Goodfellas, but after Goodfellas, he started working with Scorsese, and so Dante Ferretti did a lot of Scorsese films after. So I, I feel also that that's so thematically important in Titus because the central conflict in Titus, not the central, but the the overarching conflict, the sort of the political milieu. I can't believe I use that word. the The backdrop for Titus is the conflict between Romans and Goths. Which is the conflict between civilization and chaos. Like I love that uh, that she puts together that Dante Ferretti too puts together all these different elements uh, because it is such a fundamental clash of different styles and civilizations. I love that about it. So, all what right, movie. 
Uh, it's a movie called Titus. It's based on Titus Andronicus. It is Titus Andronicus. It's the f- a filmed version of Titus Andronicus. Dingus, who famous is in that? Kelly, I think you would really like Titus if you want. I want to. It's Anthony Hopkins, right? Yeah, and and Jessica Lang is <laughs> she's and she's incredibly humana, humana. In it. Mm. Uh, it's so. I saw actually at the Royal Shakespeare Company. It was I when I was in college. I first <laughs> shut up. I wasn't in college there. When I was college, oh. shut up. No, when I was college age, I was doing a, a semester abroad thing at London, and we got to see a production of Titus Andronicus at the Royal Shakespeare Company, starring a fella, a Welsh actor. I think he's Welsh. You know what? I'm going to walk back from that. Uh, oh, you're Welshing on that? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to Welsh on that. An actor named Brian Cox. Uh, starring as Titus Andronicus. And this was 19... Oh, heck, I don't know, 84 That's or something. Boss from Belial's Cop, right? Actually, 86, 87. Uh, a- anyway, so here's the thing. Brian Cox played Titus Andronicus when I saw this in, in, in the theater, and then Anthony Hopkins plays it in the movie. Now, do you know what that's a reversal of? Or what that, where, where else that happened? Freaky Friday? No, Brian Cox originally played Hannibal Lecter in the first, uh, uh, was it Red Dragon or Man- Manhunter? And then once again, right. Anthony Hopkins comes along and steals the role from him for the uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Anthony Hopkins also going to be the boss in the Super Troopers reboot. Oh, that's terrible. He's also Let's probably going to he's gonna play the head of the group that, ter- that gave Wolverine his uh, titanium skeleton in the next X-Men movie. Directed by Aronofsky and the Coen brothers and Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> so that was when you were college age, and now college age is too old for you. I don't know what that means, but okay. Girl-wise. What? Nothing. <laughs> Are you guys ready for my number one? I, I, yes. can't, oh. really, I, I can't really follow. It. I can't really follow Dingus's, but uh, okay. This is because I can't follow Dingus's because it's unfair. Because this is such a mundane place. So the production designer, her name is Bridget. Broke. Uh, it's B-R-O-C-H. She's Polish, so I'm going to assume it's a hard C-H, not a soft C-H. I don't know. Uh, and she has done all of the production design for Alejandra Inarritu's movies. Namely, she started with Amoros Peros, she did 21 Grams, she did Babel, and she did Beautiful. Um, now, of those three movies, three of, of, those, uh, of those four movies, three of those four movies take place in locations that I'm not really familiar with. The Morris Paris is Tijuana. Uh, Babel is various locations, including uh, Tokyo, um, a village in uh, uh, Bhutan or Afghanistan. I forget where the goat farmer lives. Racist. Uh, <laughs> and then Beautiful, uh, of course, is, is is it Barcelona, Dingus? Do you know offhand? It's Madrid or Barcelona. I can't remember. Okay, I don't think it's Madrid. I think it's Barcelona. But any, at any rate, it's a Spanish city, and it's got a very powerful sense of location. So I wouldn't know if it was accurate or whatnot. I mean, I love the production design in that just because it's got such a vivid sense of otherness, and it feels so lived in. But the production design that that I really grabbed me, I think I, I watched it again this week. This movie just slays me every time. And I don't want to say too much because I don't think Dingus has seen it. But I really feel that Inaritu's best movie is just hands down 21 Grams. And 21 Grams takes place entirely in uh, – I don't even think they ever say it, but it was shot in New Mexico. And obviously it looks like New Mexico. And the first time I think I ever really noticed production design in a movie where I'm watching the movie and I'm really into it and I think to myself – 
man, that's, you know, the way they dress that set, that's, that's amazing. That, it's, a, it's one scene, and it's not a big deal. It's just one scene where Sean Penn goes into a bathroom to sneak a cigarette. And it's not a big deal. It's not a huge scene. It's not a powerful moment. It's just a guy who's not supposed to be having a cigarette going into a bathroom to smoke a cigarette. And the way the shot is framed and the way this bathroom really looks so incredibly lived in, like, like there's stuff here that belongs to someone. Like this isn't something where somebody came in and they put some drugs in the medicine cabinet and they put a toothbrush on the counter and whatever. I mean there are things there that look like they belong to someone. They're people's things. So when I watch 21 Grams again this week, every shot is like that. Early on and often, everything looks populated. And the way he frames the shots, even though it's all handheld, and he's worked with the same DP, I think, a fellow named ah, Rats. I want to say Robert Prieto. I might be screwing the name up. But I think he's worked with the same DP for all four of his movies. They're all handheld. Um, so this is another thing like in the loop where they have a set, they throw the actors in, they let the actors do their thing, and then the handheld camera just tries as best as it can to keep up. Um, so, but, but it's amazing considering that it's handheld and it feels so fluid how the composition of the shots is filled with stuff that looks like people live there. It's like the trappings of people's lives are constantly around the frame. And I just want to mention a couple of examples. Uh, there are There's an early scene in a church, in like a rec room in a church. And in the foreground, you know, there's all these tables. There's, there's like a half-eaten sandwich or something on one of the tables. Uh, there's a scene at an AA meeting, and behind one of the characters talking, the counter is crammed with stuff that people have brought, like coffee and, and food and stuff. Like every surface in this movie looks like there are things that have been put there because people need that space to keep things. Um, there's an unraked front yard with kids' toys in it. Uh, the, the, uh, there's, a, there's an empty swimming pool that isn't empty. You know, you think if a director says, I need an empty swimming pool for this shot, someone would clean out a swimming pool and they'd shoot there. This empty swimming pool is not empty, and it's a key shot in the movie. Uh, so I just and, – and it certainly helps the way the cinematography has a sort of a gritty, grainy, realistic look. The, the production design in 21 Grams and in all of Inaritu's movie – uh, in all of his movies, uh, I just think is a great example of production design, and it's what made me want to talk about this topic. So Bridget Broke or Broche, I don't know how it's pronounced, uh, she's the one that does his movies, and I think she does a fantastic job. So Dingus, am I right that you still haven't seen 21 Grams? You are absolutely right. Yeah. All right. Kelly Wand, have you seen 21 Grams? Is Naomi Watts in it? Yes. Yeah, I've seen it. Uh, no, have you seen him more? Is that the one with the giant monkey on the island? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it's good. Oh, I man. don't normally see movies. What? Yeah, I'm just thinking of of a couple. Now that Tom talks about this, I'm I'm thinking about a couple of moments in Beautiful, like when he goes uh, into there's a woman doing laundry in in this little uh, apartment where she lives. Uh, there's so many things in Beautiful yes. that yes. Tom Tom talking about this. I didn't even think about this, and this woman. Uh, Bridget broke, did you say? Yep. Oh, man. I mean, you're right. It's just crammed, but it's not busy. I mean, not busy in a way of uh, we're just throwing shit, shit around. I mean, if you think about the way his apartment looked, the way the bathroom looks in his apartment, the way that laundry room looks when he goes to talk to that woman, yep. the way that room looks where all the Im- – I mean, that's that's phenomenal design, and that's a great – choice even though i haven't seen the film i can imagine well in 21 grams is that in places that we know i mean it's that in america it's very mm-hmm. american and and Diggs, i don't even want to tell you about the cast in 21 grams because dadgummit i ugh, 
just you know what put boot it to the top of your damn netflix queue already uh just all the actors in that and uh you know the the less you know about who's going to show up in that the, the better um but you know characters doing laundry or having breakfast or having dinner you know the scenes where i think he's having ice cream with his kids and beautiful even that kitchen yeah. uh like it's got a great sort of barcelona cool european look so i don't relate to it like it still looks kind of exotic and unusual and cool but imagine him doing that at you know a kitchen of some average guy who lives in new mexico in Aritu and bridget broke the way they put it together in 21 grams uh it's just it's it's fantastic and like i said you'll you'll know that scene where sean penn is having a cigarette it's not a big deal but just look at that bathroom i'm like holy cats that's that's like a real actual place it just feels like that's where somebody lives um so that to me is production design it reminded me a bit this is another Naomi Watts movie. There's a, a movie called We Don't Live Here Anymore, which is about two couples. Uh, they're, they're families. They're married couples. They both have children. Uh, and they're both in very different uh, kind of lifestyle situations. Uh, Naomi Watts and Peter Kraus, Krause. I don't know how to say his last name. The guy from Six Feet Under. They are the more financially successful, better off household. Uh, and their daughter's much better behaved, <laughs> more disciplined or whatever. They've got a very neat, tidy tastefully arranged house, whereas Mark Ruffalo and Laura Dern, they're the more frazzled couple with two children running amok. Their house is messier, and there's always stuff going on, and it's cluttered. Like, I remember the production design in that movie uh, and how each of their houses contrasted with each other and how lived in they did or didn't look. Um, Why is Quest for Fire bad? I'm sure it's great. I just have not seen it. Why do you hate fire? (laughs) <laughs> hmm. Interesting. How many times have you seen Twenty One Grams? Uh, four or 21? five, probably. No, uh, no, not not Twenty One. You've seen uh, it five times. Well, I own it. Yeah, no, I love Twenty One Grams. As far as oh, uh, right. I, don't, I, I don't want to say too much because of uh, Dingus here, but right. but uh, because of uh, it was one of my favorite movies that year. And it, I don't know, did we ever do a three by three about our favorite treatments of religion? Like, I think the, the portrayal of religion in 21 Grams is something in, incredibly rare and special. Uh, and I love that about it. I love all the actors in it and the performances and, and even the casting. Like, actors who I did not know who they were when I saw 21 Grams, I have since followed very carefully, and I know Dingus is the same way. Um, so there's some great small performances in it. And just, I, I love Inaritu. You know, this is him collaborating with a fellow named Ariaga, who's, who's his writer, who wrote this movie. And Ariaga went off to do his own movie called The Burning Plane, which is fine. It's okay. It's a little uneven. But I think you can clearly see that the, the real directorial talent there is, is Inaritu. Uh, hmm. So I, I love his stuff. Like I, So have you really not seen it, Kelly Wand? No, I've seen it. Okay. I forget. Yeah. I don't remember it very well, though. I remember what the 21 Grams refers to. Which is such a minor point. I mean, it's just a little poetic license they take. But you haven't seen Beautiful, though, have you? No. But I liked Babel. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. I like uh, that. It's got the Ryuni Kikuchi in it. I do not. I know who she is from that movie, but how would you know who she is besides that movie? Because her Kikuchi is in the movie. <laughs> God, mm-hmm. Kelly Wad. Sorry. I mean, filmmaking is a very subtle science. Uh, that's why motion picture arts and sciences, uh, a lot of F-stops. So what runners up? I'm surprised no one mentioned Wes Anderson, a Wes Anderson movie. Dingus, I, explain yourself. Kelly Wand, you explain yourself too. 
Well, I was going to say, um, when you said, uh, or when Dingus did Miller's Crossing, I decided not to do any Coens, because then where do you start? Because it's like, <laughs> how serious, man, a better production design than Miller's Crossing? It's like, they're just both perfect. Right. Um, but Wes Anderson, that's just Dingus being silly. Because there's only about two good Wes Anderson movies. What? One of them is the train one and Rushmore. Well, Dingus, ex- explain yourself. Why didn't you? Why didn't you put Royal Tenenbaums on your list? Um, I didn't even consider any of those, but I did. the yeah. The film I wrestled with for uh, my number three slot wasn't his, but was a Noah Baumbach film. Ah, oh, Squid wait. and the Whale. It was Squid and the Whale, and it's this production designer named Ann Ross, who has also done, uh, by the way, uh, Lost in Translation and Somewhere. And there's just something about the way that house looks and the furniture in that house. And when, the, you know, specifically when the, the mother and the father are on that couch, when, uh, when Jesse Eisenberg is playing the song for them, the production design for Squid and the Whale, the way that house looks, uh, is just perfect. It's just all that I, I'm a sucker for somebody making a personal library look good or look real. And, you know, people using typewriters and, and furniture in that house. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's a, it is a, a period piece. Okay, I have a question about Squid and the Whale that I'm hoping one of you guys can clear up for me because I hate noticing this. Uh, so it is a period piece. Now, there's a point where um, – is it Anna Paquin? Who's the hottie that comes to live with uh, Jeff Daniels and Jesse Eisenberg? I think it's her. It is Anna Paquin, yeah. Actually, you know what? I'm looking at the poster, right? Anna Paquin, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, – Anna Paquin has come to stay, and she's flirting with Jesse Eisenberg, and they're in the kitchen, and she uses a paper towel to dry her hands, and she throws it away, and Jesse Eisenberg, because, of course, uh, Jeff Daniels' character is so frugal and doesn't want to spend money, Jesse Eisenberg says you're not supposed to use paper towels to dry your hands or something to that effect, and then he takes the paper towel out of the trash. The trash – and what? And smells it. No, that's gross, Kelly. No, oh, sorry, oh Kelly. Why you're gross? Well, that, it, the the trash, if I'm not mistaken, at that point, isn't it one of those plastic bags you get from the grocery store hung up like on a on a on a drawer handle? And wouldn't that be an anachronism? Or do I have it what? wrong? Uh, if I what you're throws... saying, if you, if what you're saying is, then yes, it would be because okay. the film takes place in what seventy six. And they did not have those plastic bags back then. I just flushed my trash down the toilet, and I've been doing that since 82. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's bad. I don't know. It makes the, ta- the fish taste weird. I'll tell you that. Uh, so what other runners-up? Uh, I also, for period pieces, wanted to talk about, like, Down With Love or uh, Single... Okay. No, Single Man? Yeah, the... Uh, gay Colin one. Firth. Right. The, the gay one. Colin Firth one. Well, versus yeah, the Jewish one, because that's the serious man. So what about a single serious man? Sequel, crossover, <laughs> retcon, reboot, brand name. I but, had Eraserhead. Oh, go on. Sorry. No, Eraserhead. Go ahead if that's if that's what you want to pick. Well, then I thought maybe that's science fiction because the kid, the aliens, a baby, or wait, babies are science fiction. Wait. Anyway, I also had Joe versus the volcano. Uh, but, at one point, Kelly Wand in the loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, in In the Loop, Malcolm Tucker refers to one of the characters as the baby from Eraserhead. <laughs> I love that he does that. Wait, who does he refer to? Uh, I think it's the, uh, like, the, the there's a kid they keep making jokes about as being, like, Damien or the kid from The Shining. Like, the creepy American intern 
who who keeps loitering around the uh, Linton character. Who's the tall just, guy from The Office. I do not he's know. He's always the telling one. her. He's always telling her careers over. Yes, yes, that girl. Yeah, that yeah. that toady. Yeah. yeah, the toady exactly. Uh, he that calls guy's him good. Baby from Eraserhead. That guy's great. He's he's no Anna Chlumsky. He's too tall to be to be analogous to an Eraserhead reference. There, I said it. Good point. Dingus is all. I hate you. <laughs> uh, do you guys think the fountain would oh, be qualified as sci-fi? That's why it's not on my list. It's sci-fi and a period piece, Dingus. What do you think of that? All right. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> I almost uh, picked Requiem for a Dream just so I could talk about the fountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I didn't. Because oh. Now, real quick, Dingus, do you know offhand, does Aronofsky use the same production designer? Or do you know if he has different production designers for his different movies? Well, the same guy did both those films. It's a guy named okay. James Chinland. He also did 25th Hour, which also has a really nice production design. Um, but uh, I don't know if he uses the same guy for everything. I know he used that, that guy for The Fountain and for Requiem. Okay, right. You know, I would think that since he went so in such a different direction for The Wrestler that somebody else would be involved. Oh, you know, and now that I think about the way that trailer looks, I should have thought about that. What you mean as far as a deep, as far as a production designer for the wrestler, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, he used a different DP too. As some woman who, if I'm not mistaken, was literally a, a documentary filmmaker, uh, oh, you're right. the woman for the DP for the wrestler. And therefore uh, not eligible for Tom's. No, she's crossing telefights. over. No, she's crossing over to do real movies from documentaries. Mm. I applaud oh. that. And oh, another great production design, which probably works into fantasy, but I'm not sure, is uh, somebody named Aileen Bonetto, who did the uh, the production design for uh, Amelie. But I think that's a little bit of a uh, fantasy film. Plus, it's French. Oh, yeah. Good. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Kelly Wand, what do you have for us next week? Wait, wait. I wanted oh, to do yep. one more runner up. Okay. I had Taxi Driver mm-hmm. and also. Period piece? Yeah. And King of Comedy. <laughs> Because it's all claustrophobia uh, e. Oh. Uh, no? No, no. I, I, I haven't seen that in forever. Is it I'm like kinda, the studios are small and tight? Like that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's all claustrophobic e, like talk radio, the Oliver Stone movie. But I don't know. It's like King of Comedy. Nobody, I don't think people get it. I think people, I think it's ahead of its time. And that won't um, get- Okay, good. And then when Dingus was talking about Seven, it made me think of that movie. And it's the only thing I liked about it, really, was the production design. It was that movie Narc. Remember that Jason Patrick yeah, movie? Yeah, I love Narc. That's a Joe Carnahan. Yeah. It's really, it's so wretched and grungy and, like, just, there was some review where some guy was, like, he he said the characters were, like, garbage men in hell. Remember they go to that one dude's <laughs> apartment? And he, the guy accidentally shot himself in the face because he was trying to use his gun as a bong or something. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> and well, it's this, just, yeah. That makes me think a bit of Eight Mile, where Detroit it just looks so. Haha, you saw Eight Mile. Why is ah. that? What's haha about seeing Eight Mile? What's the matter with you? Oh, gee, uh, white rap apologist. What? I don't know, Eight Mile? I don't want to see that. That's what you know. Who saw that movie? Moms. Eight like, Mile is awesome. Oh, he's Isn't... adorable. That Eminem. <laughs> he's so sweet. He's a sweet-faced young man. <laughs> So that's you. That's your demographic. Okay, fair enough. Will, will you go see The Help with me then, Kelly Wand, when it starts? 
I will if Dingus will. Well, I'm going to get it mixed up with all your other the movies you keep telling me about. Like the Lost, The Woman. All right, all right. Let's uh, let's go the on Phantom to next Menace. week's 3x3. Three three. What's uh, the 3x3 three three for next week, Kelly Wand? Uh, okay, since I'm kind of an idiot, I don't know if you guys have noticed, since we haven't been doing the podcast that long, but I kind of like the ones where we have to like think up stuff um, instead of remember stuff. We have to come up with something. So I propose for next week's three by three. Hold on, hold on, hold that thought real quick. Dingus, get out the list of three by threes that we've already done. I think we've got one coming up. <laughs> right, right. Go ahead, go ahead, Kelly One. Sorry. I didn't hear what Tom said, but I just want you to know he's an idiot because this one is best senses of place in a movie. Dingus, why don't you check the list there? Do I really need to? <laughs> All right. It's three. Um, it's three. Oh, three movies that you're bummed don't exist. So <laughs> it is. You can do two things. And either like there's like these movies that almost happened, but they never got made. And you're like, oh, yeah, fucking Star Wars episode 0.5 would have been awesome. It's just cold streak after that. But uh, it was really interesting. 10 years before that because it's other trade federation way cooler so it's like that or you can just make a movie up and like this is what i would have clive owen and norm mcdonald as buddy cops but one of them can talk to you know what, kelly wand fair enough because i've already got one that i really want to talk about so good good on you kelly wand do you guys uh, understand the topic because I, I have no to. i have no questions and i've already got my at least number two dingus how do you feel about it no, I'm fine. The less he explains it, the better. <laughs> also, no period pieces, and they have to be silent movies. Okay, go. So join us next week for a 3x3 three three of movies that we're bummed they don't exist. Yeah. Uh, we will also Everyone's made that list in their head. <laughs> join us for hours. We will yeah. also be seen, and I don't really know what this is. All I know, it's called Phase 7. It has a limited release next week, and we're going to see that instead of seeing some movie called It All Ends, which is apparently got posters all over the place, and I have no desire to see. I think it's about, like, Ray Fiennes is an orc or something. He's got, like, an orc face. Yeah, I wonder who wins. I wonder if that's suspenseful. Tell you who doesn't win, Dumbledore. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, look at that. You know what's awesome is that my son, as we were driving around, asked me, what's that movie It All Ends about? <laughs> And so that led me having to explain to my child for the first time what tagline means. And I wish Kelly Wand had been there. For that. uh, That's also what the people asked at Tom's Theater who asked the chick behind the counter. What's all it all ends? Is that no, it's more action than horror. <laughs> so we're going to skip that. I hope no one minds. Uh, let, let's have a real quick uh, show of let's have a real quick sound off. How many Harry Potter movies have we each seen? I've seen one. Dingus. Uh -huh. what Shut up. Dingus, how many have you seen? Two. Ah, uh, you're winning. D Kelly Wand, how many Harry, Potty mo Harry Potter <laughs> movies? <laughs> I don't want to know how many. That's a movie I win I, that I'm bummed doesn't exist. Harry Potter. Okay. And I don't, I don't want to know how many Potter nine. Harry Potty movies he's seen. I want to know how many Potter. Harry Potter movies you've seen, Kelly Wand. Uh, I saw parts of one and I read two of the books and went, there's no secrets in this chamber. What the fuck? <laughs> All right. So we're not seeing that. We're seeing Again. phase seven. Don't know what it is. Don't Sequel know what to phase six. 
And I liked Phase 4. I'm a huge fan of that. The Saul Bass killer ant movie. But uh, I don't know what Phase 7 is. So we're going to see that. So if you feel like taking a gamble with us, see Phase 7. Join us next week for the podcast. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian uh, McCracken, I believe it is. It's Christian Morosky. That was close. And Kelly Wand. Time travel body switch movie Hitler and Lincoln, but just before they each get shot in the head. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living, heavy, getting by, it's all taking and no giving, they just use your mind and they never give you credit, it's enough to drive you crazy and you I think this is the James Bond of mine, Tom's the Tom this Tom. And I'm Dolly. So I got the big knobs. Oh. Since Tom's fading out, I'll throw in an Easter egg. Another body switch movie. The Guy Pierce character from Memento and Al Pacino's character in Insomnia. Because it solves both their problems. Because Pacino character doesn't want to remember. And say, Let's see. This Think is worse thought. than getting pissed on. <laughs> Hmm.